Welcome to Story Kinetics, where we talk about the art of story. I'm Adam Skelter, and today we got Todd Lindsley and uh, hey. and Camilla Wolf. One, two, three. Oh, oh that's you're better. back in sync. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's good. There was something that on it. Okay. I don't know what was. Okay, cool. <clears throat> all right, how are you guys doing? What have you guys been working on lately? Uh, let's, Cammy, let's start with you. First of all, uh, Camilla Wolf is uh, uh, one of my favorite actors to work with. She's worked in uh, almost everything I've done since I've met her. Um, and she's also a fantastic filmmaker, uh, writer, director, um, visual effects artist, animator as well. Uh, what, what are you working on right now? Well, thank you. That's so sweet of you, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I don't know. Uh, no, so I have uh, two really good news. Both of my films have gotten distribution, so that's super exciting. Nice. Um, that's great. Fantastic. Huge. Yeah. Congrats. So my, thank you, thank you. So I, I uh, spent my quarantine um, uh, animating, actually. Mm. I, I had this like bizarre dream about being abducted by aliens, don't ask, and uh, I ended up making a short about it, and now it's being distributed and it's in festivals and it's doing really well and i literally just finished cutting the trailer two days ago i think so that's right i'm like yeah that's awesome i love the trailer it's wow. hilarious yeah it's, it's very cute very cute twerking alien yeah <laughs> can't go wrong with that that's awesome did you do the character designs as well or how did you how did you get the characters did you model them uh no i i yeah i modeled wow. it in ZBrush. Nice. Wow. I, had, I nice. had to. I had to learn. I had to learn that too. And uh, I mean, it's like I've had a year. Yeah. You know, like it's not like I've done anything else. So I had time to, um, you know, dive in and get. You know, learn. Learn. I've never actually animated anything before, so this is my first wow. go at animating anything. So. Nice. And you're doing full character was, or 3D animation. Fun. So you learn to model, rig, and animate. Yes. That's Oof. amazing. So so like I can model. I don't know how to rig and all, most of my animation experience is, is 2d. So that's super yeah. impressive that you pulled that off in no time. Well, I mean, today's software is just, it's amazing. So, you know, like I, I'm going to credit cinema 4d and after effects and all that stuff, yeah. you know, like as much as I can, cause, uh, you know, I pushed buttons and did some stuff and made a story. That's pretty much. Oh, uh, and she's <laughs> modest. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Always modest. So this distribution deal, <laughs> yeah. uh, how, how did that come about? Uh, so we, uh, we had another film called Heartsick in film festivals last year yeah. and we, uh, ended up, um, being accepted into one called lady filmmakers, which is in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. And um, they, uh, because we were in the film festival, they're like, okay, well, you know, we we got this distribution deal going, and we'd love to have your film in it. And uh, so, Earthbound kind of was a result of that, I guess, which is my animated film, because mm -hmm. um, they had seen it, and it's like we wanted in our festival, we wanted in our um, our distribution. So, all of a sudden, I'm a two-film distribution film. That's amazing. <laughs> and on top of that, it's, it's not yeah. just it's not just animated. You also it's a combination of animation and live action and you you appear in yes. it as an actor as well. Yes, correct. correct. That's amazing. Yeah, we uh, Yeah, we we turned our I I turned my entire apartment into uh, a green screen studio, especially the garage. My my wife is just like, "Jesus Christ, where am I going to park the car?" And I'm like, "Park it on the side. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fine." <laughs> 
So, yeah. You're like, unless it fits in the studio, it doesn't get to stay here. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, Park outside. That's what streets are for. Well, that's awesome. So, yeah. You got to we got to follow up with the distribution and stuff. Where, where can we where can we see it right now? Like when is it available? Uh, so right now it's uh, it's going to be available on uh, May 16th, I believe, on Apple TV and Roku. So it's nice. uh, going to be under um I think it's called Film Festival Flicks. Nice. I think it's going to be under. Yeah. So it's it's still like it's a new channel and stuff like that, so it's exciting, but yeah. Fantastic. It's good. What's next for you? Yeah. Uh that's a good question. I'm kind of uh winding down a little bit right now oh, yeah. to see what what I want to do next. Yeah. <laughs> but uh I'm thinking I want to um, I want to start doing like a TikTok version of of my my little aliens cuz mm-hmm. they're kind of like they've grown on me now. Yeah. So I'm going to do that. So that's going to be my next thing. Just uh give it a week or so. That's fantastic. Well, we got to link it in so we can uh we can follow it as well. Absolutely. Cool. So, Cammy, you have aliens growing on you now? That is... Yeah, literally. Like, they're coming out of my... I know, it's kind of like weird, isn't it? <laughs> I like it. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. Yeah. It's what happens. <laughs> I love aliens. I, I just think the... I, I mean, I, I love any kind of uh, extraterrestrial or any robots or uh, any spaceships. If there's got one of those three, I'm going to watch that movie. <laughs> Todd, you went through a really hardcore, like, uh, Area 52 phase, didn't you? Not that I will admit to. (laughs) (laughs) I want to go so bad. I want to go so bad. That's, like, on my my road trip. (laughs) I mean, Adam, do you remember when when I invited you to come camp out with me in Rachel, Nevada, which is where the southern um, gate is at the... uh, at area 51 now you're not even illegally allowed to like drive up the road that goes to the gate <laughs> itself so there's that oh wow <laughs> wow so have yeah. you have you seen any have either of you guys seen any ufos only no. in movies really no. yeah <sighs> It sucks. My my neighbor, he's like, oh my god, I saw a UFO the other day. I'm what? Like, you be kidding me! I'm uh, like, I'm the one who's like all obsessed about it. I know. Like, yeah, it was like flying around, and I'm like, God. It happens I, the f- it happens to farmers who like could care less. Like, oh, there's something in the air yeah, up there. Like, well, look, there's a flying saucer <laughs> look at that. in the sky. Yeah, oh, that's great. I didn't give a crap. <laughs> I will say oh, this: well. I saw a UFO when I was about 12 years old. I was camping with a no. couple friends out in the mountains in Ugh. North Carolina. What were and... you doing in North Carolina? <laughs> That's where I lived when I was a kid for a little bit. That's a different right? question. <laughs> um, about 12 years old, we were out in the mountains, and we Ooh. saw these three lights kind of going through the sky uh, in, in the middle of the night. We thought it was just like a satellite or some way high up jet or something. And as we were watching, oh. we were just kind of talking about it. And um, then all of a sudden, the lights stopped midair and we're t- I'm talking miles up the three lights stopped wow. and they were in a triangle formation they spun around in a circle stopped again and then shot out in three separate directions oh my gosh oh my god so, that's awesome that's crazy yeah. yeah and and what's interesting is we were just like that's a ufo that's definitely a ufo but you know I, my what i think it is is probably some sort of space like just technology that we're not familiar with i don't necessarily believe it was like alien life forms or anything but but i mean it's a first-hand experience that i saw with something that i can't explain yeah wow that's jealous a little bit jealous so 
So do you guys? Just... Yeah, I'm very. I have to admit, yeah. very jealous. Yeah. I hate you a little bit right now. Yeah. Uh, did He's... do you? Do you guys believe, like, is there life on other planets, or are we just a total anomaly? Hell yeah. Yeah? Oh, no. I totally believe in that. I... We're too dumb to be the only ones in the universe, man. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, that would be, like, a disaster. <laughs> I, I have a tendency to take a little bit of a different tact on that. When people ask me, do you believe in aliens, um, my answer is, I've never seen one, but I think they make great stories. So that's, yeah, that's true. Oh, you know, that's, that's a good. Uh, and, that's a very um, diplomatic. Yeah. Way of saying. <laughs> I mean, I, do I want? Do I want aliens to be around? Yes, and and, and your logic, Cami, makes complete sense to me. It's like we cannot be the only things. You know, I mean, knowing, understanding, even just basic science, basic biology, there's just no way that yeah. we're the only thing out there. It just it can't yeah. be possible. But you know, I grew up with a, a scientific father who told us, "Yeah, there's just it's just too many there's just too many possibilities for life out there." Yeah, so, and the yeah. and we're learning that the basic building blocks of life are completely ubiquitous throughout the entire galaxy, right. let alone other galaxies. You know, and we can actually, mean, actually measure that based on uh, telescopic information and. Um, uh, from color, like the way the way people, the way uh, light gives off color. And can I tell you, there's absolutely like life completely changes itself constantly. Like I just found out last week, a, a a buddy of mine sent me an article about how octopus are able to alter their DNA or their technically their RNA, which is is then passed on and and within their nervous system, so they can actually change their nervous system. It's like it's just fascinating. Like even the understanding of what we have, we think, okay, we're just, we're solid with this DNA model that we believe. Yeah. But then we have all of a sudden we have these different animals and 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 things that completely change and challenge our our version of reality. Yeah. Anyway, it's just anyway. fascinating. Yeah. So uh, yeah, absolutely. And octopuses are definitely aliens. Like there's no question. <sighs> there's they, no question. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are aliens. Yeah. <laughs> cool. As my, are any any of you guys watching Resident Alien yet? No. No. Oh. oh Is it it's good? so good. It's on the Sci-Fi Channel, and it's uh, it's funny. Uh, what's his name? Tudic. What's his name? Uh, I keep wanting to say Daniel Tudic, but that's not it. Um, it's basically you know he's got this you know he's a voiceover guy and he's but he also does a lot of you know in person. And uh, he he's just got this show where he literally navigates this small family or this small village in the mountains of Colorado, but he is an alien. And I don't want to tell you much more than that. I mean, you can get that from your 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 uh, trailers. But is it Daniel Tudyk? Tudyk, uh, resident. Anyway, but yeah, no, he. I gotta, I, that's like, I gotta check. That yeah, out. you gotta check it out. Um, I mean, it's worth even just renting si- or paying for the app for a month. It's it's worth it. It's, yeah. But wait until the they're, they've released all the episodes, then you can you can see it. It's it's. I can binge. Yeah, then you can binge. It's funny. It's silly, and actually, it's a lot of. There's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it's yeah. It's worth. It's worth it. Whatever trouble you have to get through to see it, get to to see it. It's it's worth it. I am so freaking watching yeah. that. That's awesome. Uh, thanks for the uh, thanks for the recommendation there, Todd. Nice. Sure, absolutely. Very nice. 
Cool. Um, well, speaking of sci-fi, I'm actually mm. uh, wrapping up uh, my novel. We just did the final pass on the polish, and it's going to be uh, – uh, we're finalizing it, and we're, we're nailing – we're coming close to nailing down the release date. So we'll be announcing that on the next couple of podcasts. And then I think it's the next podcast we're actually going to be doing a uh, book reveal, a book cover reveal. Ooh, all right. So you guys nice. will actually be able to see the, nice. the – and I, I, I got to illustrate the cover. So I did this uh, painting – an illustration of painting that uh, kind of uh, tells the story a little bit or gives a little bit of a teaser for it. So, nice. uh, That's yeah, awesome. so we'll be revealing that on the on the podcast. And uh, I think next week. Cool. Awesome. Cool. Love All it. right. Well, uh, let's jump into Story Bites, shall we? Story Bites. Story Bites is where we jump into just some aspect of storytelling, some principle, uh, and we try and do like a quick kind of explanation. Um, there's lots of confusing information, lots of different ideas about uh, story. So we kind of try to uh, approach it from like a most uh, concise and precise way of uh, explaining how different story elements work. And today we want to talk a little bit about the sequence approach. Uh, Todd, did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, the sequence approach. Now, the authoritative, uh, you know, uh, person, you know, basically the the expert uh, in this field right now is is a man named Paul Galino, and he wrote a book that specifically discusses where we got the eight sequence approach from and how it kind of melded into the the three act structure and how they actually are kind of indistinguishable to a certain degree. Um, now, Paul was a student of Frank Danielle, which we've mentioned many times. And there's a lot of kind of... Now, he's kind of released the eight-sequence approach, and there have been some uh, people kind of claiming credit for it. And I, oh, I really? want to make it... Yeah, actually, I, I, I kind of went online just to kind of play with... see what See what people were talking about. It is from Frank Danielle. And basically, where he got that from is... Now, we are all very clear on the idea that in the early days of film, we had these little reels that basically had about a thousand frames. And at 18 frames a second, which is where, which is at the time the technology, that's why they called them flickers, is because they weren't perfect motion. It was 18 frames. We, we didn't get up to 32 frames for a while. But anyway, so these 18 frames um, and thousand, uh, basically, uh, and, and a thousand frames in a reel. What happened was, is that they could only um, reproduce their film uh, 10 to 15 minutes at a time. And so what would happen with these films is in the early days, and we're talking to early days, like 1913 to 1918, somewhere around there, uh, when um, they would actually turn off the projector Flip, um, someone would be like performing or they'd have an organist playing or something like that or they'd have somebody doing a tap dance and they would take the projector or they'd take the reel off and put the new reel on and then they would speed up the the uh, the flicker projector until they got back to the next frame and they would do that for every 10 to 15 seconds depending on the rate of speed at which they were able to project. Every t- 10 to 15 seconds or 10 to 15 minutes? I'm sorry, 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes. And oh, 10 minutes is kind of uh, short. It's more like 15 minutes. Um, now, and you'll actually remember, if, you, if, have you, uh, if you've seen the movie uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, 
he kind of pl- he does a little bit of a, a homage to that time in our, our in filmmaking, where you'll see him kind of push into something will go out of uh, that will go out of focus, and then and then he'll pull back out and he'll run another uh, frame mm-hmm. or he'll run another reel. Yeah. Now the thing is, is that the fifteen sec or the fifteen minutes, sorry, uh, basically started to kind of link up with the three-act structure because once they transitioned from silent movies into talkies, about 30, what was it, 1927? Somewhere around there. Um, they started realizing that, holy crap, we uh, screenwriters aren't writing just action now. We have to actually write dialogue. And so what would happen is they would, um, they now had to employ all of these Broadway um, playwrights to come over, write dialogue for them, and they were used to using the three-act structure. So what they would do is they would take this 10-minute to 15-minute um, uh, sequence, and then they would uh, add dialogue to it. Now, the thing was, there, here's the problem. Ultimately, each reel had to be independent. Each reel had to have what, what Frank Danielle would call integrity. Each reel would have to tell a complete story because at a certain point in the film or in the film history, we would then we'd go from telling one story to the next story, but they would play them very much like in the feature film days, um, again the twenties and thirties. They would actually play feature films like two reels at a time, so they wouldn't actually see the full film. But each 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 reel had to in some way um, tell a complete story. Now when he this is when he started creating or coming up with or understanding basically from Aristotle that we needed at least two culminations within the story. And culminations, is, as they are exactly what we say they are. They, the culmination is the highest intensity uh, moment. Um, and he believed that there needed to be at least two. Within these, so, so you have these eight independent film uh, stories that are being put together into a complete feature film, and you would need at least two moments of culmination or intensity or uh, strength. And a lot of times uh, he, he, he would suggest that the midpoint of the film was the first culmination, and then your climax would be your second culmination. Hmm. So that was, you know, your, your midpoint would come somewhere in, what is it, the, the fourth act? Halfway through the movie. Or the fourth sequence, yeah, halfway through the movie. And then in the final two sequences, you could choose one or the other to have the, the intensity of the, of the climax. Um, but anyway, that was, that was kind of what... Um, that's where the sequence approach came from. Was, and we have held on to that paradigm for, uh, for the history of filmmaking. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I, it's I know it's that interesting... Goes- yeah, no, that's fascinating because that, that directly informs like the way uh, people are building scripts now because now we have you know 110 yeah. to 120 page scripts that mm-hmm. are completely based on these 15 minute increments. And right. usually within the first 15 minutes is when you want to complete that first sequence. It's when you want to hit the impetus. Right. Um, cool. Really, that's a really great explanation. I liked it a lot. Um, so what, what happened is Todd was actually the one who introduced me to the sequence approach. I, I read Paul Galino's book and I loved it. it, it it's all about the, the premise of entertainment is to get the audience to project their mind forward, 
project their attention for it and guess what's going to happen next. That is the most sacred quest of entertainment. Yep. What happens next? Um, and uh, and at the time, I was already working with kind of the 24 plot point system based on this this diagram uh, or this 24 plot point three act structure. Um, and once I began to um, understand how the midpoint works and how um, how the sequence approach works, uh, it, it, it lines up perfectly with the 24 plot points where each sequence essentially gets about three plot points, three major turns uh, or three objectives that the characters uh, pursuing or protagonist is pursuing in each sequence, um, which means that, you know, uh, you know, if if it's averages down to 15 minutes, um, and again, that varies quite a bit. The sequences vary quite a bit. Then that means we usually get about eight sequences within about two hours. Um, and so what, what I've done is kind of adapted it. Like the culminations correspond almost perfectly with the impetus is the culmination of the first sequence. The dramatic question is the culmination of the second sequence. Um, and then uh, some of the, and then the midpoint culminates the, th the fourth sequence low point culminates sequence uh, six, and then we have the climax culminating sequence seven, and then again, sequence eight, um, often will culminate in uh, some sort of reconciliation. Um, and, and this is, a, and again, once again, the thing I love about the sequence approach is it means that you can kind of give or take, you can uh, regard it as malleable and molds the different, like think of it as modular. You can use different pods different sequences if they serve your story and if they don't serve your story get rid of it and uh adapt the structure to to within to your own personal needs um cool that was a great recap that's very interesting good that's very interesting cool had, had you heard of the sequence approach before cami or francolino uh i i like vaguely remember something when i was in film school about it but it's you know, when you're in film school, you're thinking about all kinds of other things yeah. than what you're supposed to learn. Yeah, right. So, uh, but I, it, it vaguely sounds familiar, but now that you like the way you described it, kind of like, oh yeah, that kind of refreshed a lot of things, and it, it makes more sense too, yeah. like coming from a story point, uh, a story structure right. point of view. So it's it's interesting. Cool. And if you go to storykinetics.com right now, you can actually download this diagram, and you can see how uh, how I go about organizing the sequences, um, and as they relate to different plot points as well. Um, cool. All right. Really great uh, commentary or great uh, explanation, Todd. I really appreciate that. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. All right. Let's jump into the ask hole. Look at the ask hole. The ask hole is where we get uh, questions from the audience, uh, listeners, uh, people who are watching, uh, other writers who have questions. Um, this one I thought was a really interesting question. It was not so much a writing question so much as a question about the format of this series. And they, they asked the question, why don't you rate the movies you review? Mm. Um, now, the, the question was longer, but basically what they were asking was like, you know, like Siskel and Ebert had the, the thumbs up, thumbs down. Rotten Tomatoes has the aggregate where you either, see, you know, say it's a fresh tomato or a rotten tomato, and then it aggregates <laughs> it. Um, IMDb has the, what is it, the uh, five out of five stars kind of things. Um, and then I know other, a, a lot of other critics will have like, you know, uh, they'll give it like a 10 stars or 10, whatever. Now on this, in this series, we're not rating it. We're not, uh, we're not endorsing or discouraging any movie. And the reason is, is because this is, I, I look at film as a discussion. It, it's an art form. 
and it's an ongoing conversation. And I want that conversation to continue. Um, uh, unfortunately, a lot of critics uh, have kind of been regarded as arbiters of the conversation. And because of that, there are a lot of, um, you know, a lot of studios and a lot of distribution models who are more interested in kind of using criticism as a mode of commercializing and marketing, mm. um, which again is fine. I, I, but what I'm advocating is go see movies. Like if it looks mm. interesting mm. at all to you, go engage it. And if it's bad, take the time to find, try and figure out why it's bad. Why doesn't it work for you? See if you can articulate why it doesn't work for you and then ask yourself. This is this is something I, I heard quite a bit at film school. Don't just dismiss it because it doesn't resonate with you emotionally. Ask yourself, first of all, what would you do better to make it resonate with someone else? Like to, to make it a better film. Now, most of the time, it simply means you're not the audience. And there's nothing wrong with not being the audience. Like, you know, film is such a there's such a wide it's it's like storytelling. It is storytelling. Storytelling uh, doesn't have to appeal to everybody. And honestly, the more specific you are with the audience, the more you're going to resonate with us, with, uh, the more your story is going to resonate with your audience. Uh, simply because like one of the, one of the pieces of advice that I love that I heard a long time ago is think of one person you want to tell a story to write for that person. Don't think of an, like a whole group <laughs> of people because it, it, you know, even if there's inside jokes, it's still going to inform. It's going to feel specific and you're going to feel connected. And then your audience kind of builds their bridge across the waters into your world uh, or you meet in the middle. Um, but the main thing is, is with reviewing, I, I don't want to I, I don't I kind of reject the idea that art is some sort of competition, that it, that it can be reduced to some mm. quantitative level. You know, sometimes you want to watch uh, Back to the Future. Sometimes you want to watch Stalker. Um, both of those are great <laughs> films for very different reasons, um, and they can be entertaining in their own ways for very different reasons. And uh, so, so because of that, this idea of kind of like creating some hierarchy, it doesn't mean that, you know, like I have movies that I love more than other movies. and I definitely have an individual value system, but it does seem a little, honestly, I think it's a little silly to just reduce things to this movie is better than this movie. They can both be great movies and we can both we can learn from from everything that we're watching. So go watch good movies, go watch bad movies and think about what you can learn from them. That's that's at the core of it. I I had a uh, yeah. professor in film school who who I said, well, you know, aren't we going to talk about, you know, what didn't work in this? And he said, no, no, we're not. And I and I said, why? I mean, that. This was there was terrible things happening in this film. This film, I won't be specific, but uh, and he said because that's the choice the director made. It's his presentation. He's telling the story. If you don't agree with the story, then you can not watch it again. But ultimately, that was the decision that was made for this film. Yeah, and I find it interesting, you know, and that kind of dictated in a certain way because. You know, as as a young filmmaker, you start being asked by other ambitious filmmakers to do like, you know, twenty four hour film festivals, that kind of thing. And I've always kind of declined because the idea that Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo decided to stand in the same room and chisel this uh, or paint um, a painting and say what, to find out which one is better is absolutely ridiculous to me. So the idea that uh, 
Um, well, I will say this: they they definitely had opinions about who they thought was. Better. Oh, they hated each other. <laughs> I mean, what yes, what, what was it? The oh, he called him a dirty sculptor. Leonardo da Vinci hated Michelangelo because, and he called him a dirty sculptor. But the thing is, is and they definitely hated each other. But my thing with any of that is, is and that and that's kind of just a metaphor to say, but. Um, I I just don't think art compares to art. It's it's just different. Um, well, and, I I mean I do want to push back on that a little bit. Like we ahead. do criticize here. Like we the first thing we do is we try and analyze and put in a serious concerted effort to genuinely analyze what the film is saying, mm-hmm. whether the filmmaker is aware of the message they're conveying or not. And I don't really care if the filmmaker is aware of what their what their intentions are. We a lot of the movies that I tend to be attracted to tend to be writers and directors who have lots of uh, literary devices that they're employing with their cinematic storytelling. Um, but I, I also do want to take the time to really uh, discuss and criticize and draw into crisis. But that I, what I'm saying is basically I want to keep the conversation open. I don't want to say this got an eight. How patronizing yeah. is that? You got well, no, not any movie that is completed is a miracle. Absolutely, that's very true. Absolutely. Now, here, here's I'm going to push back again because ultimately, what I'm what I'm saying is that it is your perspective, and and it is under the guise of creatively asking academic questions. You're not you're not um, convicting the film of being poorly made. Do you know what sure. I mean? Like that's one of the reasons why we watch films that we enjoy, as opposed to. Um, watching films that we know are flawed, and ultimately, we we want to. Um, and I personally think that there there are two things that I say. There are two choices I make when I'm when I'm telling somebody about a film that I watched. I either tell them, and this is official. Obviously, I'll talk trash about any film, you know. But um, <laughs> but what I suggest is, or this is what I say, is either it worked or it didn't work, and that's only because. I'm the audience. And if it worked for right. me, then then they they got me. You know, there are several right. films. Um, Howard the Duck didn't work for me. You know, but I know that there are people who still walk around with Howard the Duck t-shirts. And they think it's a modern classic. And that's right. great. But ultimately, it is just a different... Um, it, it did not work for me. You're and, really going to piss off the Howard the Duck contingency. You know, um, <laughs> I apologize to the Howard the Duck contingency... I know that you are vigilant, and uh, anyway, but no, uh, yeah. So I ultimately, and I, I kind of don't believe in film criticism. I know that we do push back on certain flaws, but ultimately, I've seen so much silliness come from film critics. I mean, I remember once there was this. Uh, it was a thesis paper written on North by Northwest, and. Um, there was there's a shot where uh, we start at a, a low um, a low crane and low, first position and it's on a license plate and as the car pulls away it cranes up. Well, the the thing is is that it was and I think it's pretty much at the midpoint of the film, but the the um, uh, the critic wrote that every number that or every letter and every number in that license plate was absolutely had everything to do with the first act to the second act and and the theme of the story and you know that there was all of these things that went into this this film north by northwest 
and I think he got really excited because you know it's it, it's one of the better Hitchcock films. Yeah, it's great. Um, it's great, uh, but I think he just started attributing it to things that weren't there. What happened later is a um, this was in the '60s. The uh, uh, Hitchcock was asked about this this paper that someone had written, and they said, "Well, okay, so what did that mean? What did the first three letters of the the license plate mean, as opposed to the end of the first act, whatever?" And he said, "Oh, uh, I think we rented that car that day, and yeah. uh, it was what it was." And that's and that's the thing is a lot of times in criticism we start trying to find reasons, like we we just say, "Oh, it didn't work." So now I'm going to tell you reasons why it didn't work, and I think a lot of times we'll find reasons why it didn't work. I think All right, it's, let, me, uh, let me push it's back rhetorically, a little bit on you. Hang on, hang on, I'm not done. Right. I think it's a rhetorical argument that ultimately ha- doesn't have a lot of value. Um, now, people look to critics as, like you said, the arbiters of the craft. However, I don't think critics are the arbiter of the craft. I, I think they're more um, the... Uh, parasite anyway um moving on (laughs) what what's your pushback um okay so when when it comes to analyzing and criticizing film i am interested in hearing what the artist's intentions were sure the truth of it is is that there are a lot probably most of the decisions that we're making as filmmakers and storytellers that are are working on the unconscious level we don't know why we're making the decisions. It just mm-hmm. feels right. Which and, is relevant for this film, actually. Yeah, and artists uh, artists tap into that. The Coen brothers are notorious for saying yep. they don't outline, and they don't think metaphorically or symbolically. They're not ta- they're not engaging allegories. Uh, yeah. I I think that's part of them, you know, inviting the challenge. But um, but that said, whether they intend to or not, there is a conversation that's happening, whether the artist is aware of it or not. The job of the artist is to dream. And then the, and that's mm-hmm. just one aspect of the conversation. The other side of that conversation is we get to talk about what it means to us, and we get to we talk, get to talk about the intent, uh, the 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 interpretation as well as the intention. Absolutely, which is why the intention informs it, but it does it is not the final word on the meaning of an art. Absolutely, and and that's and that's kind of more to my point is the fact that there's a band uh, from the '90s called uh, you may not never have heard of them. I I don't know if you have, but. It's called Galaxy 500. Do you, have you ever heard of those guys before? It's my first concert I ever went to. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I happen to know that Adam's a huge fan. It's one of Anyways, my favorite Galaxy fans of all time. I met. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's he's a huge <laughs> fan. I know it, and I'm just being I'm being smug. But Galaxy 500 writes these incredibly beautiful, incredibly just lilting melodies with very scant. Um, descriptions of the situation all you ever really feel is this emotionally um, it, it just flows on an emotional level it really really does there's not a and I, I remember having a conversation when I was in a band at the time and and my uh, lead guitarist was talking about them and how it's like um, you why are you being so specific with these lyrics and we started talking about galaxy 500 and how galaxy 500 did not specifically say really anything i mean ultimately the rhythm and the the emotion of the lyrics themselves were what got across whatever it is the audience felt and i believe that about a film as well now i believe a film engages both the intellectual and the the emotional um sides of our our uh 
um, I don't know why I'm yeah side of our brain, our consciousness, whatever psyche, and and so I think that that is is ooh my world's changing, um, and I think that that is important. It's an important thing to make because uh, important thing to say, and I don't think the critic has anything really a, a role in that relationship. It's like someone coming into you. It's like your you know your your brother or your your best friend coming in and saying, well. Um, you don't love her that much, do you? You're not really that into this relationship. Come on. He doesn't know what's going on between the well, two. Except, you know I mean? except the critic does have a relationship with the film and the art. I dis- I, uh, so I disagree. I, I think critic criticism is an important part of the conversation. Analysis is an important part of criticism. And film critics I, are I believe carrying in analysis. on the converse. Critics are carrying on the conversation based on their value system. And it, it brings value. What I disagree with is the idea that you have to rate it and give it some sort of quantitative, like an A plus or a grade. I think that's a little juvenile, but um, or, yeah, or it it's 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 largely marketing. And as sure. as someone who as an artist who wants to engage the conversation of art, I'm not interested in just saying go see this, don't go see that. I say go see everything. Go watch really offensive movies. Go watch silly movies. Go watch badly made movies. Go compare that with great movies, wonderful movies. People who are purists and they're like, I don't want to see that because it's not, it's offensive or it's disturbing or it's, uh, or it's like uh, people just said it was bad. Go form your own opinion. You're an mm-hmm. adult. And the best way to develop a, a palate is to taste bad things and mm-hmm. decide for yourself what works for you. I, I love think we're in a raging agreement right now. No, Ultimately, we're not. We're just not. <laughs> I think. I think we're in raging agreement. Cami, you be the judge. Yeah. But no, I'm just. I didn't mean to put you in. But no. <laughs> Cami, can you can you rate this conversation? Do, yes. What do we get? A five out of give us five. A, five, out of five. I'm gonna give it a. I'm gonna give it a six point nine. Six point nine. Six point nine. Nice. Out of how many? Yes. Yeah, but I mean, Adam's definitely yeah. get. Ooh, oh, That's there you good. go. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a seven. Yeah, it's beyond. It's almost roof a seven. That one. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, it's roof shattering. It is roof shattering. Uh, and that's my point: that's is a, that most that's a pretty of, low roof. Okay, that that is my point: is that most of what the critics have to say is arbitrary. It is, has more to do with them than it does with the actual film. And so it's like, why are you sure. sharing that with? Them? I don't care. But ultimately, well, people are looking. You know, that's why you develop like critics. Uh, you, you tend to gravitate toward critics that have a certain uh, expertise, that have certain experiences, have certain points of view. Um, usually critics are also – they're film lovers. I, I'm, it's funny that I'm in the position of, of uh, defending critics. Like, defending, we're I all know. critics. <laughs> we're all members sure. of the audience and we all want to engage the conversation. So, Just like we're all psychologists. When we're sitting here watching a movie and engaging the character, we're all psychologists. We get around. Uh, so. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's going long. But um, yeah. is it is it okay because you told me to argue with you whenever I? No, no, I like it. I like it. Okay, but we gotta All wrap right. it up. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> and and that is why we don't rate movies. <laughs> <laughs> I give that conversation four out of five potatoes. Popcorn. <laughs> All right, uh, let's jump into. Oh my goodness. Let's jump into the vivisection, shall we? You want a vivisection. Okay, today for vivisection, we are going to be doing Miller's Crossing, one of my favorite all-time movies. 
Um, if I had to rank a movie, which I try to avoid, this would easily <laughs> be in my top ten. Um, Cammy, why don't you why don't you give us a little recap of uh, Miller's Crossing? Hmm. Miller's Crossing. Well, of course, written, produced, and directed by the uh, notoriously awesome Coen Brothers. Amazing, yeah. amazing. Uh, so it's a, it's a gangster movie. I think they define it as a neo-noir. I'm not quite sure what that means. Oh. What does that mean? Neo-noir. So, Am I stupid? Am I being blonde? <laughs> well, I'm oh, talking wow. to do blonde men. Um, <laughs> uh, so neo-noir. So uh, noir is uh, largely, a, uh, it was a film movement. It was largely uh, low budget. Um, kind of largely influenced, largely. Say largely one more time. Say it again. Largely. Uh, it, I give uh, this six it, out of seven largelies. They tend to be uh, use really uh, lights and darks. They tend to explore the kind of darker, darker moral ambiguities, uh, morally gray kind of characters. Um, and they're uh, hugely influenced, hugely, that's different than largely. They're very influenced by pulp novels uh, like, you know, Raymond Chandler and... Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of those other like kind of detective novels and stuff like that. Um, the fact that it's neo-noir is because it was a modern movie that was kind of post the noir f uh, film movement. Um, and it's, but it's definitely referencing the same kind of uh, tropes and uh, storytelling in, in a very, it's actually direct, direct allusions to the, the original filmmaker um, or the original film movement. Um, yeah. So that's, that's basically what neo-noir is. It, it came from a film critic, actually, in France, uh, post-World War II. No joke. Uh, they called them uh, noir films because they were so much darker. And it was post-World War II, and so the values that, that these men were kind of dis displaying were very questionable. And that's why they kind of considered it. That's why they called it film noir, film black. Yeah, it wasn't the kind of propaganda musicals that were like very yeah. like happy and go everything's going to be happy, great. Happy. This is this is exploring people <laughs> doing really dark shit, horrible things, brutal murders, affairs, cheating on, lying, all this awful stuff, all this dark stuff. Although and Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar could have been a really great example of how if Busby Berkeley were to have done a uh, film noir, that would have been. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> anyway, okay, all right. I'll just back to you, Cammy. All right, where was I? Neo Noir, yeah. yes. So, uh, came out in the uh, in 1990. So, uh, I think wasn't Godfather one of the Godfather movies came out at that time? Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. After Godfather, yeah. you almost can't make a gangster movie, yeah, and no, without referencing it in some way. Yeah, and they they did have a nod to it, I think, in the first first opening. Yeah, absolutely. Scene. That's like mm. famous for mm -hmm. for that yeah. part. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, like they came off of this huge success with Raising Arizona and they got like a big budget, you know, like everything <laughs> was set to be fine. And then of course it tanked. Yeah. <laughs> Very interesting, you know, like, but you know, like I, I think like every good artist, you know, like they kind of, um, they get better with time, which is the case with, with Miller's mm. Crossing, you know, like it just, it got better and better. The like right now, it's like I think it has like a, almost like a nine on Rotten Tomatoes, which is amazing. Like mm -hmm. a ninety-two percent, like you know, approval rating, which is, it's it's a classic at this point. Yeah. So it's a it's a really really amazing movie, um, and it's the the premise of the whole story is about these two like this brooding, power struggle between these two gangsters, 
And then, of course, we have our main character who is this manipulative and and kind of like the high high class chess player amongst these like doofuses, mm. you know, like typical like Cohen characters. Um, that has to kind of play both sides in order to prevent this this war happening between between these budding groups of idiots, as I call it. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Did, did you get any yeah. uh, info on the budget and the box office? Yeah. So the I think they they don't really like they I th it's a little bit it varies like how much they got. Some says it's sixteen million. Other one says it's eleven. Mm. Um, so we're gonna. S Put between eleven and sixteen somewhere. They haven't really quite released how much they actually spent okay. on it, but um, the box office was five million. Five Ooh, million. That's pretty, Ooh, yeah. that hurts. Ooh. And it was the opposite. What happened? They had a six million dollar for uh, raising Arizona, and they made it in the twenties on the box office. So it kind of just like flipped itself on the wow. head. But yeah. But I do suspect it has something to do with the fact that, you know, like they're releasing a gangster movie at the same time as The Godfather is, you know, like the thing. So it's it's kind of hard to, you know, compete with that, as we already mentioned. So. Yeah, it's and it's a different it's its own kind of film. It's not a conventional gangster film at all. In fact, it's a commentary yeah. on gangster films. I know we're off off uh, right now. The the um, the Godfather film started in what, the 1970s, 72? Yeah, the first one was in 72. Yeah, 72. And then. The rest of them kind of uh, trickled in by the 1980s, and so by the and time then they, had they some were sequels, yeah, they had they had about three of them, and and by the time uh, they were in uh, the 90s, they, it would have been like solid. They, Godfather would have been scripture by then, you know, it would have been absolutely yeah, and you know, uh, Scorsese, yeah, Scorsese is the one that was talking about how. Uh, um, you can't. There, there's absolutely no way of making a, a gangster movie without referencing The Godfather in some way. Yeah, Just yeah, because they like yeah, Coppola. Coppola elevated basically what was like a, a dime store pulp novel, the, yeah. the Godfather, to high art. Um, yeah. and I, I honestly think that the Coen brothers also accomplished that with I this agree. movie. I agree. I, I actually still, to this day, think uh, Miller's Crossing is still one of their best movies. It's definitely one of my favorite movies but uh so it, it largely pulled from dashwell hammett's novels the glass mm. key in particular pulled several plot points even some straight dialogue it was definitely pulling from like raymond chandler's kind of hard-boiled dialogue um and then dashwell hammett was referenced uh, the red harvest was a big inspiration and the glass key mm -hmm. were both huge inspirations which are huge inspirations for me as well uh, with with my own writing, uh, the the last film that I worked on is is basically um, it, it's I, I pitch it as uh, uh, Miller's Crossing meets Scott Pilgrim. Yeah, that's <laughs> Which, perfect. Uh, actually, we'll we'll be talking about that uh, eventually. But yeah, so Miller's Crossing is what's interesting is the Coen Brothers are totally open about the fact that they did pull this from Dashiell Hammett. They they mm. were huge Dashiell Hammett fans. All their stuff, all of their writing really is um, influenced by it. Like most of their stuff is is very heavy noir. Um, but and one criticism that I heard of it was that was interesting was that they didn't uh, in the film they didn't say inspired by the Glass Key or inspired by Dashiell Hammett. And it, it's a fair point to say that this was so it was so uh, referencing the source material that it would have made sense to to point that out. Mm. Um, 
at the same time, this is a film that is reinventing. They didn't. They weren't beholden to Dashiell Hammett. They weren't beholden. Uh, they're making a commentary on film noir. Hold on, I'm getting a lot of noise from Scout. Let me just take care of her real quick. Sorry yeah. about that. No worries. The other thing that I think is fascinating, just while he's out, is is that traditionally the Irish and the the um, Italian mob have always been um, territorial. You know, and and uh, advent uh, adversarial. No worries. Yeah. I actually want like when when I was seeing this, I was like, oh, is this the point at which the Irish mob was taken out and the Italian mob was brought in? But no, I think it's more just of a metaphor. But they do kind of play. Wait, what are you, what are you talking historical about? Historical stuff. We're just talking about the adversarial nature of the Italian and the Irish mobs and how they've kind of historically been. Always kind of at each other's throats. Okay, we're gonna we're actually gonna talk about that a little bit. Um, okay. Cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks for that uh, recap, real quick. Or thanks yeah. for that recap, Cami. I thought that was great. I can't believe it only made five million. <laughs> that that's crazy. I know. It's, it's, it's crazy. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, and I absolutely loved it. But I didn't know why I loved it for years. I've mm, I've probably yeah. seen this movie more than just about any other movie. I've seen it easily over a hundred times. And I, I still oh, wow. get uh, I get more out of it every time I watch it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was I was so young when it came out, you know. Like I, you know, I was nine, yeah. so it's just you know, <laughs> like I, I was I was you know that was my I remember my dad he he brought it home because I lived in Norway at the time, so he he would give me he gave me the first VHS with Dick Tracy, you know, like that was mm. my my initiation to the gangster yeah. stuff. So I, I wanted a yellow coat and a yellow fedora, <laughs> so I was running around being Dick Tracy. Oh, so that's cute. I, I missed Miller's Crossing at the time. I don't think I was allowed to see it. Well, this is this is definitely more brutal than Dick Tracy. I know, yeah. right? But still pale. I so, mean, Dick Tracy was basically the comic book version of uh, of Pulp Noir. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, pulling from a lot of the same tropes, just kind of more of a caricatured approach. All right. Well, let's yeah. let's dive into the uh, structure. Mm, story structure. Um, and uh, let's see if we can uh, figure out what this what this means. Before we go into this, I want to ask you the question: What does the hat represent? I mean, it, there's so many shots that are just beautiful shots of hats, of specifically hat. Tom's hat. What do you think the hat means? You have any ideas for an, an interpretation of the symbol? Uh, I, th- I think it's more related to the main character, if if anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like how. Especially, you know, like it's it's kind of like how he is, like that that uh, statue in the storm, where he's like that order in the chaos or whatnot. You know, like every like the hats are flying on and off. That's his like his armor of sorts. Ah, I, I like feel that. that's interesting. That's nice. Like he, you know, like he, um, like that's how like he puts it back on and order is restored. Oh, you know? like he maybe like smacked around, yeah. but order is restored. I like and that. You know, yeah. like he makes a he makes a point out of it at the end too. I, I think the Coen brothers said is like it's, it doesn't mean anything. It's like the hat is like it's a hat. <laughs> it's beautiful, but but for the character, I kind of feel like that's yeah. It's it's like an armor, like his his sense of uh, you know at least he has his hat. Yeah. You know because it's always freaking mm, yeah. Things, so. How about you, Todd? Um, one of the things that I had noticed about the film this time around was actually one of the quotes that he uh, that Tom was it said is is nothing more foolish than a man chasing his hat. And I I noticed that when 
you know, there, there are just several moments. I mean, I think there was one scene where he was retrieving his hat from Marsha Gay Harding's um, apartment. And yeah. I, I honestly, to a certain degree, I love the idea that when he puts his hat on, that order is kind of restored. Um, and I don't, I, and I don't know exactly where the chaos comes from. Like as far as like w- when he's, um, when he's kind of off his heels a little bit. And then he he has his hat back on, and then we kind of know okay everything is kind of working out. Now, I know the Cohen brothers, and uh, again going back to our conversation about criticism, I know the Cohen brothers have said the hat doesn't mean anything, um, but obviously it meant something to you, right, Cammy? Yeah, yeah, and so and there is that meaning there, um, and I don't know. I, I honestly I don't know. Um, so I found it I found it kind of a. Uh, uh, in order of chaos as well, but I didn't quite verbalize it that way. Okay, yeah. You're right. The, the Coen brothers do specifically say that the hat doesn't mean anything. Um, mm-hmm. They also say that there is no allegorical interpretation that they intended. Um, yeah. And that goes back to the nature of art, which is uh, the artist's job is to dream. And we get to dream with them, and then we also get to deconstruct the dream. Um so I, I believe that there are subconscious patterns. There are patterns that are endowed, uh, or there are patterns that endow the um, the symbols and the metaphors with meaning. And I believe by the end of this podcast, we're going to have a really uh, concise idea of what the hat represents. And um, and I, I want to see if I can uh, convince you guys, or persuade you guys uh, here, here, to, to see, here, to, to see what other. the hat means. Here's my other idea: is the ulti- ultimately, I don't believe for a second that the Cohen brothers put anything in frame that they don't in- <laughs> intend to to have in the frame, or yeah. uh, you know, it, I and they just, compose it in a way to prioritize it to give it yeah, a certain amount of importance. Yeah, when when you want something to be important, you present you present it in a certain way, and yeah. literally. This shot right here is is Miller's Crossing. Literally, the title yep. appears over the hat in the middle of a path in the woods. Mm-hmm. What the woods that they refer to as Miller's Crossing. Um, so there's a lot of meaning that we can. But but before we get into the deep stuff, uh, before we deconstruct all this stuff, we we need to start by uh, diving into the structure. Okay, so first let's look at the just the basic uh, plot structure and see how the plot structure. Uh, opens up the character and then reveals the themes and all the metaphors that go along with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so the first thing when we're looking for the structure is we want to find we want to identify the dramatic question, and the climax. And again, the dramatic question is the through line. It is the will a protagonist achieve X, and uh, the climax is the answer to that dramatic question. And it's it, and it describes the whole conflict of the entire story all the way through. Okay, so for Miller's Crossing, what is the dramatic question? Who, who wants to take it? Do you go, Cammy. Go, Cammy. <laughs> it's all you. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think it's it's relating back to to this breeding war. You know, like is I I, I kind of feel like uh, Tom wants to Tom wants to keep his boss empowered. Like that that's like he wants Absolutely. to make sure that he he wins the war. That's 
what Good. I think okay. Is. So, um, well, well, first, let's identify the protagonist. Who is the protagonist? I think it's Tom. Absolutely. And why do you say it's Tom? Tom. Tom. Did I say yeah, Tom? Tom? Yeah, you said Tom. Yeah. 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 Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah Todd, Tom Todd's Tommy. agreeing with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why, why do you yeah. think it's Tom? Yeah. Uh, it, it's just, it's all, it, it all kind of revolves around him, but he's also, uh, like, he's also, like, the one pulling the strings everywhere. Yeah. You know, like, everything kind of, like, evol evolves around. Like, Verna might be the one that's the catalyst to everything that happens, but Tom is the one that kind of deals with, with yeah. everything. So, one I thing know. I love about this is he's definitely the protagonist, but I don't know if he's the hero. Because everything yeah. he's doing, uh, they're, not, they're not presenting, and this is what I love about the Coen brothers, they're not presenting his choices as something to aspire to. We're fascinated mm -hmm. by what is making this, uh, what is driving this guy, what's making this guy tick. What is the engine yeah. beneath the hood that's making him make these uh, these decisions? I'm going to disagree with you. I believe he is the hero. Oh, no why. question. Um, I, I, you know, when we get to the climax, I want to talk about that. But yeah, I I believe okay, he is the hero. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's identify the dramatic question real quick. I do think you're right. I do think it is Tommy has a very specific objective that relates directly to Leo coming up coming out on top. Because Leo is, is mm -hmm. he's a mob boss. He runs the he runs the Irish mob, and then all the other uh, factions of different mobs. And this is typical of most. Uh, now, let let us point out this is Prohibition era. It doesn't mm -hmm. identify the city. It doesn't say what city it is. Uh, but there are certain references to suggest that this might be uh, New York Prohibition era. Um, uh, but they did shoot this in New Orleans. That's how they got a lot of that yes. kind of uh, mm. that, those beautiful sets. Um, Gorgeous. Uh, so so because a... it was Prohibition era, it, it's, it's all about how they used, um, you know, um, they used Prohibition as a means to control the mob war and the control, uh, the, the kind of illegal distribution that was going on. You were going to say, Todd? Uh, I, I, have, I have kind of an alternate uh, dramatic question. Um, and I'm kind of playing with it still in my head, but ultimately what I'm trying to figure out is, is uh, will Tom kill Bernie? Will Tom kill Bernie? Because, or will That's Tom... That's interesting. Yeah, because it kind of plays into my idea of Tom's uh, value structure. Okay, so yeah. If, yeah. It, if it is will Tom kill Bernie... Um, at the, at the very beginning, we see the the conversation where they talk about, uh, you know, Casper wants to kill Bernie because he's mm -hmm. fucking up the whole fixing the the, bet, the bets, yeah, um, the fights. He knows he um, likes to short him. Yeah, and and Tom is like, well, of course, yeah, just let him kill him. There's, this is no big deal. He's obviously mm. the source of the problem. Let Casper take care of his business. That's what you do. Yeah. Um, and Tom's amazed. Well, amazed. He plays it down, but he says it's a bad play, Leo. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would say his objective is not so much that he wants to kill Bernie, but that he wants Leo to be safe. Or, he, or in particular, he wants Leo to, to still be boss. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Ultimately, I think that he sees that as being um, his objective and also his value. He values, he values Leo because he believes that Leo is... The better boss. 
Okay, I actually think it goes a little bit deeper than that, but I do think, yes, ultimately, conscious sure, desire, does. clear objective. Um, the best way to articulate that in this most straightforward way is, will Tom solve... Um, will Tom solve Leo's problem with Casper? So okay. this, the war is a result from Leo having an issue with Casper. No, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Okay. So it's every single thing that he's trying to accomplish, every single scene, he's not trying to set out to kill Bernie because he had several opportunities to kill Bernie. In fact, he, he, one where he was supposed to kill Bernie. His objective was not to kill Bernie. His objective was to solve the Casper problem for Leo. Because Casper start, went from being uh, an annoyance to a challenge to a rival to a straight-out war. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's why I would say that the, that the dramatic question is, um, is specifically about solving the Casper problem for Leo. Yeah. And then the climax is the answer to that question. Uh, what, what is the climax? Does Tom solve the problem for Leo? Well, yes. Yeah, he, he does. does. I mean, he comes out on top. He still has his girl, and he loses, but in a way, I guess. But, uh, you know, he's got his hat. He's got his hat. <laughs> Tom does. He's, got, he's his got his hat. He's good. Good. Yeah. Very good. I mean, he got his city back. He got everything back. So. Exactly. He, he solved it. So real quick, what is the moment where we get the dramatic question presented? What is the moment where, where we know that Tommy is setting out to solve this problem for Leo? Well, I actually kind of saw him as a little bit of a passive protagonist at first. Oh, really? Because he was more concerned. It it seemed like he was more concerned about the, like, he he wanted to settle his debt, but he also Mm -hmm. needed to settle, you know, which is kind of the, the, the B story on this. He wanted to settle his debt, uh, but he wanted to settle it on his own, uh, on his own. He -hmm. did not accept any help from anybody. Yeah. to get that that debt taken care of. And so I find it um again part of his value his values is was that um he was going to take care of the debt himself. And that's what So what is of, let's bring this back to the dramatic question because I do want to dive into that, but I want to okay. make sure we're clear on what the tent poles are that that we hang the entire spine of the story sure. on. Sure. Uh, what is what is the moment where we know that Tom is going to solve try to solve this problem for Leo? I I kind of wanna I'm a, I'm a little bit torn here because it's like you have he he kind of has several moments mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think there's one um, where he where he goes where he's called upon to go and see Casper. Mm-hmm. Where he's sort of like being like he's being told again, you know, like I I will solve this issue for you too, because both of the they're they're kind of like individuals, those yeah. two, like Casper and Leo. They're kind of like they're both kind of a little bit dumb and full of pride, and and so you know they're both trying to solve solve the same issue, which is which I find is interesting, yeah. but um, but also I guess maybe. Um, I don't know if when he when Leo comes to his apartment when Verna is there and tells him about you know like his his spy being has gone missing yeah. or when he when or if that's like an area or okay you know the next conversation let, let me help you out just a little bit because Miller's Crossing the biggest criticism people have of it is that it is such a complex plot and it absolutely yeah. is and the more you watch it the more the plot kind of lays itself bare but it, it mm-hmm. just follow the specific 
choices the characters are making. And you can you can see from moment to moment what Tom is getting, what Tom wants because of the actions he's taken. Mm-hmm. Um, the moment where um, Tom says, uh, look, it's too late to bow down to Casper. You just need to um, go ahead and give him Bernie. And the only reason... It's a bad play. Yeah, the only reason Leo will not give him Bernie is because he's in love with Verna. And so mm-hmm. Tom says, you know what? I'm going directly to Verna. This is the first moment where he says, I'm going to stop you. I want I want you to take your reins off of him. And I want you to turn mm-hmm. up, like, stop trying to using Leo. Stop trying to turn Leo away from uh, uh, taking out Bernie. So that moment... Would you say that's when they... Sorry. So Go that's ahead. the moment that we know that Tom is directly engaging, trying to solve Leo's problem for him. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's, right that's that where one. we know that we, we've got from that moment on, we've gone into the second act. And uh, Tom yeah. and Tom is now actively looking for opportunities to try and solve the Casper problem. We know we know his strategy. It's a much smarter strategy than what Leo was planning. And uh, and the first thing he does is goes straight to the problem, which is Verna. And then from that point on, yeah. that point on, we know that Tommy is actively trying to seek ways to solve the Casper problem for Leo. So, so ultimately, you think that, um, and I I would agree that he specifically went to Verna so that he would be tailed, and so that he would not have to necessarily. Tom went to Verna. Tom went to Verna. Yeah. But I don't think he knew that he was being tailed. No, no, no. I'm talking about when he goes to her in the in the uh, women's room, in the ladies' room. Oh, okay. I'm yeah, talking about... I was, I was yeah, talking about... they have the fight and break Yeah. I was no, talking right about... Around, right around 22 minutes, Tom barges into the ladies' room. Right. And he has a confrontation with her and all the women get out of there. It's but a, I'm talking about in the first scene. act. Okay. okay. Yeah, this is the end. Of, that's the end of the first act is the ladies' room scene. Yeah. Well, what I'm talking about is when he actually went to Verna in the first place. After they had the scene in Leo's uh, office, he yeah. speci- he went straight to Verna again, and I think that he knew he was being um, not not necessarily that Tom was being trailed, but Verna was. She was being. Tailed. Let me let me push back a bit on that because he, okay. we actually wake up. They, he wakes up the next morning hungover after a poker game where he mm-hmm. lost the hat to uh, Verna. Right. And uh, that's, uh, and then that night um, when he goes to Verna, I don't think Tom knew that he was being followed because there's that moment they do a quick close up of him um, saying, like when he when he says, "Well, I had her followed last night," and Tom has a moment of, "Oh fuck, okay, did he?" Yeah. So did yeah? I don't think he knows. (laughs) Well, that's what you saw in his face. He didn't ever say. He didn't turn to the camera and say he was being followed, and now I'm, now I'm. Uh, he knows that I've been. Tra- you know what I mean? It's like you don't. Yeah. I mean, there is a question as to whether or not he knows. The thing is, okay. is he knows so that he's in love with Verna. Uh, okay. We're getting a little bit in the weeds. I want to make sure we nail the dramatic question and the climax. So the dramatic question is: Will he solve Casper the, the Casper problem? And then the climax is: Does he solve the problem? And if so, how? What is what is the moment where the Casper problem is no longer an issue for Leo? When Casper dies, yeah. being shot by Bernie. And then he shoots Bernie, and then it's all taken care of. Good. So basically, but it's start, but it's start, so if Bernie lived, does uh, Leo still have a problem? Yes. Why? I believe so. I, I think because throughout this whole thing, because it's like 
that's kind of why I think Bernie is such a elusive character yeah. because you kind of you hear you hear his name and then it's not until you, we see him when he's you know like in the apartment and he's just like we're all friends we need friends and then the next is like when he's taking him to the woods to yeah. get a shot right and up until that point you think that because I mean John Turturro is like such a great yeah. actor so it's like you feel like that guy is going to be so freaking afraid he's going to run away but then no 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 he comes yeah. back and he wants more this thing is not going to go yeah. away. He's that wart on your ass that's just going to stay unless you peel it off. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So I think that's kind of, you know what I, I mean? I know about the wart on my ass. So I didn't. I was guessing. Yeah. So, yeah, the moment where uh, Tom kills Bernie when he pulls the trigger, that is the answer to the dramatic question. That's when, because he knows that even, even though Casper's gone, as long as Bernie's alive, then Verna's always going to be able to control Leo. And he's always going to be mm-hmm. a li- he's always going to be a liability that uh, Leo's not going to be able to handle it. It's 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 his Achilles heel. It's his weakness. It's it's Leo's yeah. Achilles heel, not Tom's. Um, yeah. So we we get the dramatic question: Will he solve the problem? The answer is yes, and he solves the problem by sending Casper and Bernie at the same place. They run the same place and they rendezvous. Bernie takes out Casper, and then Tom takes out Bernie. Okay. Um, so from there, we want to identify the impetus. Now, the impetus is the presentation of the problem. Um, what is the impetus in Miller's Crossing? Todd, that one. Uh-huh. You can try that one. Well, the, I mean, the impetus is, is, uh, is when he tells Casper he's not going or that he'll think about it. See, that's it's great because for a long time I did believe that the opening scene was the impetus because that's the presentation of the problem. No, no, no. This is this is the next scene where he's pulled in off the street by his thugs, and he's um, oh, where Tom is pulled in off the street by his thugs. Yeah, Tom's pulled off on the street I by Casper. I think that's Casper's. more of a second act. I yeah, think. that's well into the second act. That's well is it? past. Uh, yep, because uh, mm-hmm. he's already confronted uh, Verna. Um, it's actually right after that that he's pulled into it, so that's well, that's well into thirty minutes into it. Okay, so the impetus, which kind of got, has the so the problem not, he wants to solve is Casper. Casper is going up against Leo because he wants Bernie. If he mm-hmm. just if Leo just gives Casper Bernie, then the problem is solved and everything can go back to balance. But there's a moment that happens that makes it impossible for them to just give Bernie to Casper. What is what is that thing that happens? I'm trying to think really. Yeah, it's hard a complex here. plot, but it's once you once <laughs> yeah. you identify the actual machinery, then it all lines up and it's very very clear. It's very. Uh, specific. Give us some. Give us some hints. Give okay. Us some hints. So the opening scene, Casper says, "We want Bernie," and then Leo gives him the mm-hmm. hi hat and says, "I'm not giving you permission. You want to know?" He's like, "I'm not asking permission." He goes, "You want to know if I'm I'm gonna kick? I'm kicking. All right. So if anything yeah. happens to Bernie, then you got a problem with me, right?" Yeah. And then that later that night, we learn about Verna. Verna goes missing. Um, Leo shows up at Tom's apartment. They have the conversation and Tom is basically saying, Vern is no good for you, Leo. She is, she's a dangerous, toxic person. Um, and then the next morning they find rug Daniels in the alley 
his body. And he was the guy, he was the tail that Leo put on Verna. Yeah, the tail. And Leo immediately, we go to the office scene and Leo is saying, we got a murder. We got a gangland murder. It's obviously Casper that took out Rug. And this is, at first, it's kind of a mystery story. It's it's a detective story that I kind of pulled from the glass key. Um, But but right off the bat, uh, we know that Rug Daniel... So, so when they when they discover Rug Daniel's body, then Leo is like, "Casper's gone up against me. He killed one of my guys. This is this is war. This is Casper. Casper made a move. I told him if he made a move against me, then I'm going after him. This is war. This is the declaration of war. So the impetus so you would-, would be the moment where Rug Daniel's body was found, because from this moment on, which is interesting. Because Casper didn't have anything to do with it. But Leo yeah. thought, Leo and Tom thought Casper had something to do with it. Which is why I don't think Tom thought he was being followed. Because it's not until halfway through the movie that Tom figures out that it was, um, that it was Mink that shot, uh, that shot Rug Daniels. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that, yeah. That so, so from this that point on, totally that's nice. where the problem. Because before that, it's Casper saying it's in the, the first opening scene is kind of a negotiation of stakes in a way. They're basically saying like, "Look, I know you have power, but I want this, and I have power, and I want this. And if you do something, then we're gonna have a problem." But nobody had actually acted in any way. Nobody had done anything. It's not until Rug Daniel is murdered that now the story is set in motion and now there's an actual yeah. confrontation that's the declaration of war that's the rubicon they pass okay yeah so that means that the sense. finding rug daniel's dead is the impetus and then we go straight to a scene with uh, uh the mayor and uh the police chief and leo and leo's telling them what they need to do and they say we're gonna hit casper really hard the interesting thing is casper doesn't want war that's part of the irony of this the whole story is Casper is actually kind of he's he's a violent thug, but he's an innocent violent thug in this. He doesn't yeah. want war. He doesn't want this to be any worse. Than it. He follows all the procedures that he knows he needs to. And Tom is actually the one who's lying straight to his face the whole time. Um, yeah. Okay. So once we have when we've identified the impetus, dramatic question, then we want to follow the emotional arc, and that drives us to the midpoint. Midpoint is usually a kind of False climax, it's where you think you're going to solve all the problems, but suddenly you realize that it is much more complex than uh, you set out to be. Uh, what is the midpoint in Miller's Crossing? I'd say it's that fake killing of, of Bernie. That's Interesting. Yeah. Why do you say that? Because the, the, the brooding war is about yeah. Bernie. Like, who's going to take him out? So when he thinks that, okay, well, he's... He's saving. He's 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 not killing the guy. He's making him run away. He's saving his face to Verna, who's ha- who he has the affair mm-hmm. with. He's also, you know, like not putting necessarily Leo in a bad place, but he's you know like basically lying to Casper. He is putting time. Leo so in a I bad think, place. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, yeah, so I think it's uh, so for them, it's just like that's that's okay. He thinks problem solved. I didn't get need to get my hands dirty. Yeah. Off we go. Yep. And then, of course, good. Exactly. I think you're dead (laughs) on right. When Tom lets Bernie go, he could have solved all of the problem right there. That could have been the end of the war. That actually would have saved lives. And everything in in Tom is saying, I should pull this trigger. And yet he doesn't. 
And there's a very interesting yeah. reason why I think he doesn't. And that's, that's what we're going to get into. Um, all right, so the midpoint, Tom lets Bernie go. Um, and then we want to identify the low point. What is the low point? It's a kind of unconventional structure, but it's the moment where Tom is just feels the most weight. Um, this is a little it. Most of the time, um, uh, the low point is defined by all hope is lost. Like the the character mm -hmm. feels like they no longer have the power to achieve what, accomplish what they want. This one doesn't have quite that dynamic, but it is at the core of Tom's character arc. And up to this point, Tom doesn't know yeah. if he has the conviction to pull off what he needs to do until the moment of the low point. Yeah. Well, that's, Any um, ideas? I, I don't know. I Because uh, Bernie comes back and he starts blackmailing him, right? Um, yeah. So yep. I'm just wondering if that might have something to do with it, that that, that would be his low point. But then it he kind of makes it so seamless into like how he fixes the problem, so I'm not sure. But... Yeah, I'd probably... It's a little frantic and 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 yeah. uh, reactionary toward the end. The third act yeah. is typically completely reactionary, um, and Tom is so smart that he's able to do it in such a way that it, it looks like he planned it. But you can there are little yeah. clues suggesting that he's actually figuring this out as he goes along. He has a plan. He has a scheme. He's sticking to the scheme. The scheme is working, but just barely by the skin of his teeth is it working. So yeah. that dark, the darkest, heaviest, saddest moment usually involves lots of shadow, lots of blues, lots of rain. Oh, that's interesting. Generally speaking, there you know, I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, but in this case, <laughs> definitely has some rain. Um, it's that scene where Verna corners Tom and says, "I know you killed Bernie." And she points, oh. a tr she points the gun at his chin. That's interesting. And she tries to pull the trigger, and she can't. And he says, it's not as easy as it looks. Because he was in yeah. the same situation with her brother, and he couldn't pull the trigger. Yeah. And it's that moment where literally she, she puts the gun to his chin and cannot pull the trigger. And she just, Marcia Gay Harding is such a great performance in this, where she can't. She just collapses internally and just wants to just break him and she can't bring herself to do it. You yeah. think she's just this cold, heartless person until this moment she's found her limit. She can't go beyond. And Tom is forced to confront that same limit in himself. So the low point yeah. is when Verna tries to shoot Tom. Oh, that's interesting. That, um, and what's sense, interesting but, is... Yeah. Tom's plan is working. Most low points is when their plan isn't working and they're failing. So they feel completely emotionally um, unresolved. Uh, so they don't know how to, s to fix it. And the only way they can fix it is by going through kind of a transformational character arc. Oh. Tom knows that he's going to have to show up and murder whoever is left at his apartment. And he thinks he thinks most likely it's going to be Bernie because Bernie is paranoid and trigger happy. And he shoots people and he's, um, he, he, he hides in the shadows. Uh, so he yeah. is waiting for the moment where Bernie and Casper are going to meet at his apartment, knowing that he has to go shoot Bernie and he has to confront Marcia Gay Harding, his sister, or sorry, Verna, his sister before he can go do it. So the whole time I think he's kind of going through this crucible of, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can, I can shoot a man. I've always been the person who's pushing other people, getting other people to do the dirty work. He won't yeah. get his hands dirty. 
He never touches a gun. Pulling the strings. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so um, from there, uh, the main bones we want to look at is the hook. Now, what is the hook? What's the opening scene? What's that all about? Can anyone be trusted? Cool. So they present some themes. It's that scene in um, uh, in Leo's office where Casper, yeah. uh, John Polito is giving one of the greatest monologues. That's just all about yeah. uh, friendship. <laughs> Hell, Leo, I ain't afraid to say it. Ethics. It's it's so great. <laughs> you get the power dynamics. You get the metaphor. You get uh, yeah. you get the great confrontation between uh, Tom and the Dane amazing charismatic actors every single one of them this cast is absolutely flawless i don't see the character i don't see the the actors as actors i see them as characters that i'm just watching them um and it's yeah. played with such beautiful irony too and like kind of that tongue-in-cheek awareness of how much they love the the style and the of the dialogue and the style of the hard-boiled uh noir it's it's so beautiful um so absolutely so the hook is uh when leo gives him the hi-hat we learn about the characters, and also it plays very heavily into theme, which we're going to talk a little bit about that. Usually you want your hook. Um, you don't have to introduce the main character, the protagonist, in the, in the, in the hook, um, but you do want to set the tone, and you do want to give some sort of thematic relevance. Uh, it's like the overture for a symphony. You want to give the theme and then explore the theme endlessly, but the, the hook is the thing that, that uh, tells you that this movie is going to be about something. And what I love is that opening image of uh, three glasses of ice being thrown into Irish whiskey. No. Which I think is a very specific <laughs> metaphor about the love triangle that's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll talk about that. Okay, so we've got the hook, impetus, dramatic question, midpoint, low point, climax, right? Uh, we've got the act one to act two, which resolves itself actually pretty quickly. Act two, uh, we, we jump into act two right around 23 minutes. Um, right after that ladies' room scene, mm -hmm. uh, we jump into Act Three at the midpoint uh, at the Miller's Crossing scene, um, and then uh, and then we get the low point with the the scene. I think she's right outside of uh, Chinatown, or, or what is supposed to be some sort of uh, version of Chinatown, um, or Little Tokyo. Actually, I'm not sure. Um, but then uh, then we have the climax, which is where Tommy shoots Bernie in the head. Uh, from there, we want to identify a subplot. Now, this, this does have a unique subplot um, that kind of uh, weaves its way through the entire story. And um, it's something you could eliminate from the entire plot, but yet it reveals a lot about the character and it elaborates on the theme. Do you guys know what that is? What's the subplot that we keep going back to? Tom's debt. Tom's debt, exactly. Tom's debt with who? specifically mink uh it's actually it lazar mink? lazar that's right lazar, lazar yeah, yeah. Lazar. yeah so lazar is uh, um uh, he's the one that's taking all of tom's debts and and he's the one that, mm. so tom's got a he's on a losing streak uh and he's got a gambling problem which play it, it's a very interesting thing about the theme and one of the things i love about this is the coen brothers said they want to make a movie about handsome men in hats <laughs> which is goes back to why I want to like I actually think their subconscious if it's not conscious their subconscious is working overtime and developing uh, or maybe it's my subconscious that's working overtime and deriving some sort of meaning from hats and and the role that plays in this culture 
Um, so yeah, the subtext is Tom, uh, Tom has lost his hat. Tom's got a gambling problem. Uh, and him losing yeah. his hat uh, works on the narrative level, on the sub- subplot, and it also works on the uh, thematic level. Okay, And then from there, we get this whole strand of all these beautiful scenes working together. This is what I love about, Miller, about Miller's Crossing is you can, you can pretty much cut scene by scene, take it out, and it's like a single. You, I just want to watch it over and over again because it works in so many interesting ways. Um, and then from there, I, I took the time to kind of identify what the sequences are um, based on the structure. We got the first sequence, which is where, you, where we introduce the protagonist and the rules of the world, kind of the hierarchy of uh, the, the, the hierarchy and the social structure that Tom uh, navigates. Um, and then the second sequence is actually very short. Second sequence is usually between the impetus. Uh, the, the, second, the first sequence usually culminates at the impetus. Um, and that's true for this. And the, the impetus is Rug Daniels found dead. And it feels like a chapter ending. Right after Rug Daniels feels dead, it feels like the, the very next scene feels like the beginning of a new chapter. Um, and then uh, it has a you know, gangland slaying newspaper thing. And then Tom goes to Leo's office. And usually there's kind of a negotiation of the stakes. What's going what's to happen? Now, the first scene, the hook scene, it's a longer scene. It's about, um, what is it? It's about nine minutes. And a lot of the negotiation of the stakes covers, uh, covers what is usually covered after the impetus. That's why this second impetus or the second sequence is such a short sequence because we kind of know what's at stake at that point. Then the dramatic question happens right in the ladies room, um, right around 25 minutes. Uh, then the third sequence is basically the first day of war. They've now declared war and it's, and it culminates in that beautiful Danny boy moment where Leo is doing his Tommy gun symphony, just taking out everybody. Um, uh, the old man's still what is it the old man's still an artist with a thompson <laughs> yeah with a tommy gun yeah <laughs> yeah um and then from sequence four is all about trading sides tommy and leo are on the outs uh and tommy uh switches over and goes to casper's side and he has to prove that he's on casper's side and the way he proves that is by going out to miller's crossing and killing bernie okay and that culminates at the midpoint which is uh prototypical structure right there uh, the sequence five is Tommy behind enemy lines. It's where he's trying to play up Casper, work over Casper and get him to be paranoid and questioning, uh, his own soldiers motives, the Danes motives in particular, um, basically get driving Casper. Like basically Tommy's whole tactic, a uh, whole strategy is to divide Casper from inside. If he can get Casper's crew to turn on itself then he then uh, he doesn't have then Leo doesn't have to fight him. Um, so the so the next sequence is all um, Tommy behind enemy lines, uh, and then the next sequence sequence uh, six is when shit gets real. This is where mm-hmm. every all the setups that are happening before start to pay off. Um, yeah. And then uh, from there we have sequence seven, which is tying up all the loose ends. Now, sequence six. Now, normally, most two-hour movies tend to have about eight sequences. Uh, this has a very short falling action after the climax. Um, and, and it clearly has seven sequences based on the culminations that we can identify. And each one of those culminations uh, work really effectively. They, and this is a good example of how you don't need to follow the structure as rigidly. 
um, you can just have seven sequences. Lots of movies. E.T. Uh, doesn't have the full eight sequences because the climax is literally E.T. gets on the UFO. We see Elliot's face and then we go to credits. We don't see any falling action or reconciliation. The reconciliation is the letting go, the climax. Okay. Uh, so from there, we've got the structure now. We've got an idea of like what the major machinery, the dynamics are of the story. Now we want to dive into Tom as our protagonist. Um, and this is the rubric I, I use to kind of identify what, what aspect of the character, what, what is the transformation he's going to be going through, and what is the engine that's driving him to make these decisions. And we start with a conscious desire. And the conscious desire is always to, connected to the dramatic question. So what is Tommy's conscious desire? To protect Leo, I think. I think he wants Leo yeah. to make the right decisions. Yeah. yeah. He wants, uh, and basically, specifically, he wants to solve the Bernie problem. Or Casper's, uh, Leo's Casper problem, which is Bernie. Okay. Yeah. Good. So his unconscious drive. Now, his unconscious drive are his internal sacred values. What do you think uh, Tommy's uh, sacred values are? What's it, what's, what drives Tommy? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, I mean, he's, like, he's very methodical, so... Mm. I guess he's like in in search of I don't know <laughs> search of his soul or something. I'm not sure. I mean, that's not probably not like the unconscious drive. I'm guessing, but um, I mean, it, it definitely a search for a like soul. Like a problem is a huge, solver. I'm sorry. He's definitely a problem solver. He's a fixer. He's a he's a consigliere, yeah. where you know he's the man that, who, that that consults with his with his boss. Every single scene, yeah. Tom. What what is being called into question is Tom's relationship to Leo. Is he doing this to serve Leo? Mm -hmm. Or did he really go over to Casper? Now, at the end, we learn yeah. he didn't go over to Casper, that he was just working his angles the whole way. So yeah. I would say his unconscious drive is that he is deeply loyal to Leo. He wants to prove mm -hmm. to Leo uh, that he would do anything for him. Would you say that Leo is like a father figure to him, in a sense? I think he's more than that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But yes, I, I, I do, and it directly connects to this to his, the the question of loyalty. Now, embedded within that uh, unconscious drive is a weakness or a, a false belief or a lesson that that he needs to learn. What is Tommy's unconscious, or what is Tommy's Achilles' heel? I'd say the fact that he thinks he can manipulate everyone into doing what he wants. In a sense, except he can. He does it successfully. Exactly. So is that the yeah. is that Achilles heel? In fact, from this point on, I think he's still going to keep manipulating people. Yeah, maybe not. I mean, this time he had to get his hands dirty. That's well, a huge part. Go ahead, Todd. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I think I think uh, Marsha Gay Harding was or Varna was his Achilles heel. It wasn't until he kind of they had that low point conversation together that he was able to kind of let go of her. Oh, okay. I want to. Uh, I one. like that a lot. Uh, I yeah. I think you're right. Um, I, I think you're right in the in the way that it is directly the, the Achilles heel is directly connected to Verna and his perception of Verna um, I, and his relationship with Verna. Um, but ultimately, his value is all about loyalty to Leo. Leo, mm -hmm. who is basically he's not taking Tom's advice. Um, <laughs> okay, so his unconscious drive is that he is deeply, unfailingly, literally loyal to a fault or loyal to, at, at his own expense to Leo. 
So I think um, his Achilles heel is he thinks he can protect Leo without getting his hands dirty. He thinks he can manipulate and spin everybody in circles, work all the angles, but he always does it by getting other people to do his dirty work. And ultimately, he doesn't arc until he finally gets his own hands dirty. Just like you said. Yeah. Um, which means that he is butting up against this moral imperative. And the moral imperative is simply the rules of uh, the, the moral rules of the sphere that he's occupying, which is to survive the gangland jungle, you have to get your hands dirty. Like he always kind of sees himself as too smart for the gorilla work, for the thug work. Um, and that's why he's always been kind of able to leverage his position. And this is a story about how he can no longer leverage his position and still protect the one he loves or the ones he love as well as um, uh, as well as keep him safe. That didn't make sense. Protect the ones they love as well as uh, stay in power. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I would say that the, the central theme, the, the overt character theme of the inner conflict is having a heart in the jungle gets you killed. That's why he says, look into your heart, look into your heart. Every time he says, look into your heart, and then, he ends up getting manipulated yeah. when he refuses yeah. to, to have a heart anymore. That's why he says, you know, look into your heart. And he's like, what heart? And then he pulls the trigger. Heart. I don't have, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's a good that's scene. It's a great scene. It's so good. It's so tense yeah. and so painful. Um, so let, let's dive into this question. What is this movie really about? And it does tie back into this concept of the hat. Um, now, uh, there is this one, you know, in doing some research, the, a lo- the thing you'll always find brought up is that this is the source of a lot of debate about what, it, what the hat actually means. And someone referenced this George Bernard Shaw um, quote from Heartbreak House. He says, ever since, Thuc- uh, ever since Thucydides, i got to say that, ever since Thucydides wrote his history. It has been on record that when the angel of death sounds his trumpet, the pretenses of civilization are blown from men's heads into the mud like hats in a gust of wind. Now we know that he has this dream that a gust of wind comes along and takes the hat off and just blows away. Right. But what's interesting is Tom says, you know, to maintain his dignity, he doesn't chase the hat. But what I like is this, uh, what, the reason why people reference this is a lot, is the, the suggestion that the hat actually represents the pretense of civility, the pretense of, um, you know, this is, this is about men basically dressing like businessmen and going around acting like animals, being brutal and uh, murdering and torturing and doing these awful things, all while pretending to dress like bankers, basically. Yeah, yeah they, um, even reference, they even reference the union suit. Yes, exactly. During the film. Yeah. They do. Yeah. Um, so I think, I'll, uh, so what I love about that is that, you know, the, the argument, uh, when we first see Tommy close up and we see the Dane facing off to each other, uh, we get this line from Casper, for a good return, you got to go betting on chance, and then you're back in the anarchy, right back in the jungle, and on, a, uh, on account of the breakdown of ethics. That's why ethics is important. It's the, gre- it's the grease makes us get along. What separates us from animals, beasts and burden, beasts of, beasts of prey, ethics. I'm no John Polito, so I'm just butchering that. But um, <laughs> it did good. Right? It was good. <laughs> so I think the hat plays into the meaning. Like the first time we see the Dane, the way he's just kind of looking out from under that brim, those really haunting, uh, soulless shark eyes. They're so brilliant. Yeah. Um, 
which I think starts to tie into this uh, tie into this concept of, of what the hat may mean. But then it, we, let's pull it back a little bit and let's look at the question: Why is it called Miller's Crossing? What is Miller's Crossing in the movie? It's a place where they kill people. Yeah, it's where they get rid of the bodies. They kill them and get rid of the bodies. Good. So this is where they cover up the secrets. This is also where they basically go to war. This is the this is the field of war for them. Um, I think in some ways this is referencing you know the the opening scene. The very first lines we hear in the whole uh, movie are um, John Polito, uh, Casper, saying, I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about character. I'm talking about, hell, Leo, I ain't embarrassed to use the word. I'm talking about ethics, which has this kind of <laughs> resonance of uh, Mark Anthony's speech of friends, Romans, country, friendship, character, uh, ethics. Uh, lend me your ears. That was, that was how uh, Mark Anthony actually drove people to rise up and, and go to war. Um, what I think they're doing is referencing a kind of moral crossing. Like the, so um, when Julius Caesar crossed the River Rubicon, he was in open defiance of the Senate and uh, was the beginning of, of the massive war and ultimately his own downfall. Mm -hmm. um, and I think Miller's crossing is that uh, that Rubicon for um, for Tommy, it is it is uh, the the one place where once he crosses it, he can no longer return from it. And killing someone with his own hands, putting putting a gun at Bernie and pulling the trigger, is his Rubicon. It's the one thing that changes him forever. Um, that that is the point of no return. That is the die is cast. Which um, now, now the Romans, uh, the Romans were just you know bathing in the culture of the Greeks, um, and they both of them, mainly the Greeks, um, had this concept of uh, different concepts of love. They divided love into different functions. There's the agape, which is brotherly love; eros, which is sexual love or passion; uh, mm -hmm. phil uh, philia, friendship; storga, parental love; and then. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Felicia, <laughs> Felicia, <laughs> which is self-love. Felicia, Felicia. I don't know how that's self-love because I can't reach that far. But man, I'm impressed. Wow. Those Greeks. <laughs> oh wow, impressive. Um, so I think what Millage Crossing is really about is asking big questions about the nature of love. Like, what drives Tommy mm. to go through so much? Is it to protect Leo? Is it to protect? Uh, Verna. Um, so I want to ask this question. Does Tommy love Verna? Is he in love with her? I think a part of him is, in a sense. But then it's like a question of which, which love is stronger. for like Which for love him. is stronger, in your opinion? I think his, his love and respect for Leo is stronger. He's willing to, like, he is willing to back yeah. off. I think he has like a sense of when when he goes to visit Verna and they're like talking about like getting away and you know like that sort of stuff you know like he kind of plays along with it a little bit but then he's the one not being able to sleep he's the one thinking he's he can't he can't take that step of the sort I actually I actually think that that Verna is the things that he can't say to Leo I think that Verna is actually more of an extension of Leo than anything She's, uh, I mean, she's a character, obviously, but, you know, and I'm ta talking in very ethereal weirdo terms, but ultimately she does seem to, f to, uh, be the things that he can't say to Leo. He literally, um, he loves, 
as an extension of Leo, he loves her too. Um, but she's also um, a conflict between him and Leo. But Leo, I, and, I absolutely love that. And this, you know, this whole podcast is based on let's dive into the deep end and see if we can find uh, interpretations of metaphors that make sense that, that resonate with us. I mm-hmm. think you're right. I actually want to take that and expand on that a little bit further. Um, I don't think that Vern is necessarily an extension of Leo. I think it goes a little bit deeper. There's this great scene where they're sitting down and she says, you always take the long way around to get what you want. Mm. And then he says, what did I want? And she goes, me. Of course, you're in love with me. That's why you're doing all this. That's why you told Leo was just to get me. And then he said, and then look at that look he gives her. Is that the look of, yeah, yeah. I wanted you. So the, the big question is, what did Tom really want when he, when he accomplishes it? And we know because of what Tom actually got out of this. Um, and I think the key to that, to really understanding what relationship Tom has with Verna is in this ladies' room scene. Uh, there he barges in, runs past all the women. We see Verna at the mirror. And uh, they have this whole conversation about Tom basically saying, leave Leo alone. I want you to get off of him. And she's just saying, is this because you're jealous or because uh, you want me to yourself? Or is this because you're, you're jealous that I, that I love him or that I'm with him? And we, you know, we return favors. Now, the interesting thing about Verna is she and Tom are probably the two most intelligent, craftiest people in this entire city. Yeah. Verna is Tom's equal. Like Leo is not as smart as Tom and Leo's not as smart as Verna. Bernie, he's got the strategy, but he doesn't have uh, a lot of sophistication that Verna has. Verna and Tommy, I believe Verna is a reflection of Tommy. Hmm. And I think this scene specifically tells it. Verna is who Tommy, a dimension of who Tommy wishes he could be or or as sees himself as. Um, And the reason... Basically, I think this ladies' room scene is a way of saying he's crossing the threshold into his alter identity, which is Verna. And we know that because of this scene. Who's that uh, matron right there? Oh, my God. That is Leo or the actor Albert Finney. No way. I'm completely serious. Albert Finney. (laughs) I cannot. Oh, now I can tell. Holy shit, I didn't know that. Oh. So, oh, Barris wow. Novellian wow. told the story. He was the cinematographer. Uh, the cinematographer for this <laughs> told the story about when Albert Finney, like, he's a great classic actor. He's a fantastic actor. And this was one of my favorite roles for him. Uh, Albert Finney, after he finished shooting all of his scenes, said, I'm having so much fun, I just want to hang around. And they're like, well, you can dress up in, as, as a maid and hang out in the ladies' room. And he's like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> Now, the truth of it is, is I actually think it's much more than that. I don't believe the Coen brothers are as unaware of metaphor as they claim. They would be different filmmakers. I think that they are allowing film and storytelling to do the work uh, of itself. They, they don't want to be interpreters of their own work. They want the work to speak for itself and let the conversation go on. So I think they're fully aware of the layer of the of the theoretical and allegorical interpretations and dimensions to their stories because of moments like this. This isn't just Tom coming in and threatening Verna. 
This is saying this is we are looking at the female versions or or the alternate versions of, of uh, female projections of who they could be. Now, what I think the story is really all about, and this is why the moment where he threatens her, where they separate, is a crack in the mirror. Hmm. In other words, the reflection is now flawed. And I think you're right, Todd. I think Tom was largely using Verna to be closer to Leo. I think the story is actually... Uh, there's that moment where you know they get in this big... It's like a lover's spat. And then Tom storms out right yeah. right before the ladies' room scene. And he mm-hmm. says, God damn kids like a twist. And yeah. twist in hard-boiled language was uh, an epithet for homosexuals. Mm-hmm. So he was saying, you know, he's, he's like a, he's, he's, you know, just acting like a, a, a gay wife, a jealous wife. And what I think is true is, um, and we already know that we have other, you know, um, homosexuals in the story. We know that the Dane is with Mink and then yeah. Mink's also with Bernie. And then there's some suggestion that Drop Johnson is also homosexual. And I think even Casper is probably very closeted homosexual. Um, and what's what's interesting is I, I think the, the actual truth of the story of Miller's Crossing is this is a story about a deeply closeted man in gangland who is in love with Leo. I think he is in love uh, like like one like a husband to a husband, right? But unable to say it. And the the confirmation I have of that is if you rewatch the story as Tom is a man who is deeply in love with Leo, but cannot tell him what would he do to prove it? Every single scene may, lines up and perfectly makes sense. Um, you'll notice that Tom is wearing this one ring on his right hand. This is called uh, a cladic, a, a ring. It's an Irish ring. Now the ring was worn with the intention of conveying the wearer's relationship status. Um, and th- and they specifically focus in on the ring at key moments. This is the moment where he's saying, Casper, you have to trust me. You can trust me. My neck is right out there, right alongside yours. And the irony is he is literally saying that's not true by showing that ring in that shot. He is lying to him. Now the ring is a breakdown. The hands represent friendship. The, the heart represents love and the crown represents loyalty loyalty specifically so the hat on the heart is loyalty now what's interesting is um the way you wear the ring indicates your relationship status if you're married you wear it on your left hand with the heart pointing toward the wrist um if you are in a relationship and you're in love and you're promised and committed which means you can't see anybody else then you wear the ring on your right hand with the heart pointing toward the wrist exactly as Tom's wearing it. So an Irishman would only wear this ring in this circumstance if he was married or engaged. Now, what's interesting is we know that Tom does not have a relationship in the story. Uh, For all intents and purposes, he doesn't have a wife. He's a bachelor. um, And yet he's wearing that along with a second ring supporting it. I believe this is Tom's subtle, secretive way of saying or the filmmaker's actually way of saying that Tom is actually in love with Leo and that this is uh, that Miller's crossing. When he says, look into your heart, he's also pointing literally at the ring 
and looking where the ring is showing where his, his loyalties are. His loyal, when he says, look into your heart, he's saying, look, the subtext of that is, I'm a gay man, you're a gay man, we're both in love with powerful men. If you look into your heart, you'll see that. I think that's the real reason why he's not able to pull the trigger, is because deep down, yeah. he hasn't reconciled that. He, he hasn't quite proven to Leo that he's willing to do anything because of his love for him. Now, um, so I think the hat not only represents Tom's loyalty to Leo, I think the hat also represents the facade, the, the facade of facility or the facade of heterosexuality. Ah. Leo would, <laughs> in this sense. brutal world, Leo would not be allowed to admit that he's gay. And Tom, yeah. he probably might not even be gay. It doesn't matter. But Tom is definitely in love with Leo. So in this world, for Tom to be close to Leo, the only way he can do that is by staying at his side, being his consigliere. He loves him more than anybody. And then Verna becomes this kind of medium. Verna is a version of, uh, of Tom. And that's what's so interesting is that opening scene where he sees the hat being blown off down uh, into the woods. Now that's right after he has the dream right after he's lost the um, huh. right after he's lost the, the poker game with Verna. So Verna has taken his hat. Now his hat represents his relationship to Leo, his position, mm -hmm. uh, the relationship that he has or his position next to Leo. Verna is threatening Tom's relationship with Leo. So that's the main reason why he go. And then every single time, like for example, uh, there's that scene where he's, I uh, probably can't see it very well here on the counter. This is the hat uh, that's on the dresser. And in the background, it's him laying next to Verna after they've, you know, uh, supposedly made love. And basically he's got, he's put the hat or the facade of heterosexuality on the dresser saying this is what he's doing to hold his position, which is why he's constantly negotiating his loyalty to Leo. Um, and that's what I think is at the core of Miller's Crossing is that uh, the, the brutality of getting your hands dirty is something that he's eventually going to have to face. And this is, a, this is largely a story about a man trying desperately to hold on to the person, protect the man he loves um, without giving away that he loves him in that way that would destroy the relationship. That's why this last wow. scene with Leo walking away and him looking up out from under the brim completely says, not just I love you, bro, but I'm in love with you. And it, it, there's that subtle suggestion oh, that he's always going to be there for him. Which makes Miller's Crossing not wow. just uh, not just a story about <laughs> gangland slaying, but largely, you know, this is the this is nineteen nineties, well before gay marriage was was even on the docket to be legalized. There was still a lot, but this is also the nineties representing the twenties. So, yeah. uh, what's so interesting is also all the people who are being murdered in the story are all gay men: Mink, Bernie, yeah. the Dane. Uh, even drop Johnson, like he's he ends up, you know, being part of it. And I think Casper, the suggestion, there's a subtle suggestion that Casper uh, was largely he was married to a beard, you know. Hmm. Um, and so all the people who were killed basically were, you know, they were killing off all the gays in the story. 
Um, and Tommy was feeling like the only way he's going to be able to hold on to this love for Leo is to just let him go, to just give him what he wants. And that's why that moment where he is at the low point facing Verna, this is him looking at her saying, I'm going to go kill. Like this is where he and, and his, his side of his, his pure side separates. Basically, he's looking at her as saying, all right, this is the version of me that Leo wants. I'm going to give it to him. And I'm just gonna, and then I'm just gonna mm. walk away. That's so sad, isn't it? it in that sense, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah. I think it adds so many more yeah. beautiful layers to it. Yeah. Um, oh wow! Mind blown. <laughs> Officially mind blown. That's why yeah. I think there's more to this. You know, like it's it's they're oh, all wow. themes that resonate with me in a very personal way. But I think it also talks about the larger stories of uh, of our culture. Like this, this is where I. You know, we, we won't go too deep into this, but I Miller's Crossing, I've seen it so many times, and it's such a perfect example. That it, it's, it's a bottomless well of interpretation. Um, and there's this thing that we can talk about briefly called the proto-theme and the meta-theme. The proto-theme is simply the proposition about a rule of survival within a sphere. Basically, the proto-theme is what you get from the inner conflict. Tommy learns in order to survive in the ganglands, you got to keep your, you got to get your hands dirty. The meta theme yeah. is a proposition about the human condition under criticism. So Tommy has his experience and has his character arc and he learns some experiences. But the reason why the Coen brothers are telling this story is because they're actually talking about the human condition at the time that they're making this film. Mm-hmm. Now, this is 1990. Uh, this is the end of the this is the, the Reagan era is wrapping up. Um, and we're, we're seeing all of the all the effects of the Reagan era. Um, this was written while Reagan was still in office, um, and so we can start to look at what the what the relationship is. Is you know, especially knowing that this is a closeted man trying to. Um, oh, I think we lost Cammy. Can you hear us? No, okay, we just temporarily yeah, lost video. Yep. Okay, it's still recording, but um, okay, we'll just keep on going as it as if it's recording. Okay, so the proto theme is having heart in the jungle gets you killed. But what we can look at it is in order to find the meta theme, we can look at the patterns of different allegorical relationships um, and start to derive some other uh, um, some other sense of meaning, other interpretations. Uh, There's the historical allegory, the religious allegory and the political allegory. So the historical allegory, we kind of touched on that. This is a story kind of. Um, telling about the relationship between uh, Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, and Brutus, uh, Stoicism, uh, how Tommy is u- largely using Stoicism, um, uh, the, the guise of Stoicism to kind of cover up and protect him uh, from actually exposing his homosexual uh, love for Leo. Um, and then uh, the religious allegory, like uh, what's interesting is it kind of asks the question of, you know, Tom is a Christ figure. He is constantly getting the shit kicked out of him for Leo's benefit. So it kind of takes on this kind of Messiah figure, this this uh, Judas-Jesus dichotomy where he's both betraying Leo, but he's betraying him for the purposes of protecting him. Um, and you'll notice that every single time, uh, I think it's about 12 times that somebody says, Jesus, Tom. Jesus, Tom, Jesus, yeah. Tom. And they're just trying to nail that That's in that this Tom is a type of Christ figure, um, mm. <laughs> <laughs> which, which I think is sure. playful. And then if you if we look at the political allegory, I thought this this was just an extra added dimension. I don't think this is necessarily intentional. 
but it is a fascinating relationship. So his name is Tom Reagan, right? In 1990, mm. they named their character Tom Reagan. Um, you know, Reagan, Ronald Reagan was uh, the Republican president from 1980 to 88, correct? And, 88, um, yeah. yeah. George uh, Bush would have been president at this time. Exactly. So George Bush yeah. was in the middle of office around that time. And I, I'm always interested at how film can relate to um, both political commentary from artists, but and also kind of play a role in, in propaganda as well. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting about Tom is that from the opening scene, we know that the betting pools are fixed. Casper, the whole point of it, Casper and Leo are arguing about how unethical it is for someone to cheat on a fixed game. <laughs> Which is interesting because if the thing that Reagan, one of the things that made him famous mm -hmm. that it still trickles down to today is the trickle down theory of economics. Trickle down theory is basically where you rig the game so the people in control get all the benefit and then everybody else just has to fight for the scraps. And that, you know, the benefits are supposed to trickle down. It's it's an it's an economic theory that doesn't pan out. It doesn't work. Um, but Reagan was a huge advocate. Most of his policies were based on trickle down theory, and it was called Reaganomics, actually. Um, mm. But what's interesting is I think Reagan probably actually totally believed that he wasn't an economist. He was an actor, and his idealism <laughs> is what drove him to make all of these choices. Uh, to put all these, uh, uh, to put all these, uh, Im to implement all of these policies based on trickle down theory, and we see Tom Reagan, who is also uh, somebody who knows that the fights are fixed, and yet still wants to bet on chance and is losing the entire time. <laughs> it, it's another added extra dimension that I think could be an interesting commentary on political allegory. It's something you can reference. Um, again, I'm not saying that's what the Coen brothers intended. I think it's a fascinating pattern that you can uh, use to illustrate it. Um, and so well, the meta theme ultimately is uh, humanity. What makes us human is also most of the time our downfall. Um, humanity is our vulnerability. Were you going to say something, Todd? Well, what I like about the story itself is because I've, I've actually heard your take on on the Reaganomics and post eighties um, thing, which I really enjoyed. But what I really love about the story is the fact that it is so well told allegorically that you can plug in several different, um, different dynamics and you're going to get uh, uh, a really good representation of a story. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. you can plug it in and, and ultimately because these, these characters are, or the situation is so well written that it 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 can be used as a template for for yeah. any theme you chose you've chosen to do. I mean, basically, you take the theme and you change the aesthetic or whatever, and it's a good one for screenwriters to be to be studying. Absolutely, it, yeah. I strongly recommend people read the script, study this film. I I still think it's a masterwork. I still think it's one of their greatest scripts. And no it, this, just speaking about allegory, the, one of the reasons why the movie works is that it works on the literal plot-driven level. It works on the psychological level. Uh, and then it also works on the allegorical level, uh, which, you know, gets us to the, um, the anagogical, which is, you know, the, the, the question of... Anagogue is just the interpretation of something is what, what is the ideal that we can derive from this story? And... Um, 
which is largely implicit. And I think uh, the Coen brothers are sophisticated enough to say that, the, that it's complex and that it, there isn't a moral virtue here. This is more about uh, moral complexity. This is an advocacy or aspiration. This is bringing things, bringing dichotomies or bringing di uh, dichotomies into dialectic and conflicting with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, which, Sounds right? Interesting. Fucking love it. Well, it uh, kind of goes back to it. Kind of goes back to the earlier conversation we were having about Galaxy Five Hundred and how they made these um, really wonderful um, this this poetry, which is so emotionally powerful, but non-specific and so that they they wrote rode that line of of really being able to um relate to their audience just on an emotional level yeah cool point all right let's let's jump into shot your plot hole so did you guys see any plot holes were there, were there any parts that you were like wait this doesn't make sense this doesn't this doesn't add up this is where we shift from analysis to criticism like we were talking about earlier I think because I haven't, I think I've seen this like now three times and it's been like very long time in between every time. Um, but I think that whole Mank Dane situation kind of had me a little bit confused. Mm. I think that's sort of like, I'm like, what? I'm, I'm like, I kind of had to like go back a little bit. It's like, I still don't yeah. get it. But you know, like it was just like, it was a little bit too vague. I felt like they didn't put enough into it for me to understand it like first get go but now that i'm going to go back and look at it i'm sure i'm going to see something interesting that, that's a, so i'm not necessarily that's a really fair criticism because at the beginning in the first act especially they're talking about characters that we've never seen and they're debating how characters what different choices they're making and the relevance without knowing who they are we don't know that mink is steve buscemi until uh what a good 15 20 minutes in and yeah. we don't know, like, we don't know uh, what the relationship between Dane and Mink are because we don't see it. We see people, we hear people talking about it, um, which, which is an indicative, you know, that's it's part of the things that it's also true with the glass key and red harvest. There's a lot of talking about people that are like, wait, this person did this and this, you know, Johnny over here and Rufus, Rufus <laughs> over here. And they're like, wait, who's Ruth, Rufus? Um, uh, yeah, so that that's a fair criticism is, is you know, cinematically, generally, you want to be able to introduce characters not by talking about them necessarily, but like uh, by introducing let get it. Let us see the characters uh, before they start playing a part in it. And there are plenty of exceptions to that. But but it, that's a fair criticism. Can I also Anything add else? how can I also add how cute Steve Buscemi is in this? I mean, he's yeah, just he's freaking good. adorable in it. I can't. Yeah. He is oh, so cute. You know, he's so cute. Yeah. It just was, uh, yeah. yeah. I just like, oh, he's so young and he talks so fast. Yeah, he's so. Uh, it's just great, yeah, and such I love. A I, I love his uh, his phone conversations. Like you hear it, and it's just like, oh, how can <laughs> yeah. you miss that? Like, that is definitely Steve Buscemi. Uh, uh, Jesus, Tom. <laughs> Jesus, Tom. No, Tom. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> you know, it so reminds great. me of uh, he. He reminds me so much of the elevator guy in uh, Hudsucker Proxy. Oh boy! Oh, yeah. well, why didn't you tell a guy? You know. <laughs> yeah, just that's great. Yeah, there, there's one little thing that it's not a plot hole. It's just a something I in watching it. I question if it's plausible. It, it's asking us to make a big step, and that is. 
would Casper be so easily convinced by Tom that the Dane is fucking him over? See, that was a that, little bit I'm of a little, a little to game me, of that's inception. A stretch. There's a little in, bit of a game, game of, of incep- inception there, where he was okay, he was yeah, planting all this point. information into Casper, and it's like, oh, I hope his brain makes those connections. Yep. My my other thing, the 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 kind of not really plot hole, but uh, a kind of suspension of disbelief. Every once in a while, I kind of pull away and go, "Is anybody this smart?" Or is it? I mean, he's kind of a little bit of uh, uh, Ferris Bueller in in this environment where he can kind of things kind of work in his way. I mean, even even the coincidence of finding a body at Miller's Crossing. It's it's kind of like there are certain things that I'm kind of like. Oh. I mean, I understand it. Things happen, but yeah. you know. But then again, when you start. You start accepting that no, it's a metaphor. It's, it's an. Al- I'm sorry. It's an allegory, and don't uh, uh, don't kill yourself over this. And I and I have a tendency to then deaden my my critical thinking and and allow it to happen. Well, no, but- I th- I think it's fair. I you know, I do think that there are people that are as smart as Tom. You know? Well, like- and and as lucky though. I mean, there's some luck there. Um, well, so so that paid off. Like him, him taking care of Bernie. Bernie mm-hmm. needs to cover his tracks. He thought of, Bernie thought of that. Tom didn't, and it worked. It worked in his favor. Um, I'll give you that. Sure. It's a little bit of a well. Thank God Bernie thought to do that at the right time. Right. Thank God he killed Mink. I'll give you that. It's 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 not a plot hole because they're very good motives. People were highly motivated to make that decision. Bernie mm-hmm. was highly motivated to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. you're right. It, it is. I, I kind of. I, I kind of also feel like they kind of set up. They already set up Casper to be a buffoon, especially with like the with his son. Mm. You yeah. know, like with the with yeah. Penny. And he's just like, okay, pick again. Yeah. You know, this one. And he's like. Mm. <laughs> and it's sort of like, yeah, because he's just like bragged about how he's just like his yeah, dad, yeah. you know, like or something along those lines. It's like, yeah, you kind of set it up that he's like he's dumb as, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's like, a penny you owe him. Here and it's like, I'm gonna get that yeah. one. It's like, no. Yeah, I yeah, I do so. think he's a bit of a buffoon, and they definitely played into that. the The thing of it is, is he's got certain he's got certain street smarts, which aren't enough to outsmart Tom, um, but. The Dane has done nothing but show him loyalty. Tom is new to the crew, and now, yeah. like literally, when we see the Dane, he's holding Casper's hat, standing at attention, and he's got his back. And that's why the Dane and and Tom, you know, the Dane is kind of that uh, Nietzschean shadow of, uh, version of uh, of mm. Tommy. Um, but but I think it is a bit of a stretch. To to show because all all Tommy does is show up and say you know you you haven't thought about this way of interpreting it and Casper's like oh I didn't think about that and it's like uh, yeah. I'm asking you to murder the person who's done nothing but overly demonstrate loyalty to you who's held your hat he's been with you for years so I, I think it's a little bit of a I'll give it to you but you're just barely skating by because yeah. I, I I don't think. For Casper to get where he is, he's got to have some street smarts. He's got to have some wisdom, uh, and he's got to be scrappy. He also is paranoid, 
uh, and Tommy's playing on the paranoia. But the moment where Casper turns around and shovels uh, Dane in the face, I'm like, I don't know if that was enough to convince Casper that the Dane had fucked him over. It just makes a really great uh, scene. You brought up the scene with the child when he slaps him and then he hugs him. Yeah. I actually think that the child was an illustration of it, of his childhood as well. Oh, yeah. I, you know, because as a parent, you have a tendency to, to even if you're not realizing it or not conscious of it, you have a tendency to repeat a lot of the parenting, you know, decisions that were made for you as well at that age. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kid was definitely a mini-me of, of, uh, of uh, what's of his Casper. name? Of Casper, yeah, of Casper. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was just, you know, yeah. It seems very Freudian to me. The whole relationship there was very, very much. Here, I'm going to smack myself, and then I'm going to hug myself, because that's what I need. And Yeah. You know, anyway. Yeah, and that's that's the thing, you know, from, from my big takeaway, is when you're looking at developing characters, the thing you want to look at is what does this character uh, bring out in the protagonist? Mm. What role do they play in the protagonist? What form of conflict do they uh, reveal about the protagonist? And that's mm-hmm. something to keep in mind you're, when when you're developing your characters. Don't just have characters who want to, you know, uh, shoot you because they're bad. You know, <laughs> find really powerful psychological reasons and delving mm-hmm. into that. You know, looking at how each character is. You know, take a solipsistic point of view, where characters are projections of their own internal struggle. Then all of a sudden, you get fully fledged characters that have lives of their own that. They don't just you know con- pop into being as soon as they walk on stage. That'll that'll bring lots of depth to it. All right. Cool. Any other criticisms or um, uh, yeah? Any other criticisms of plot holes? Not that I not on the top of my head okay. right now. I felt like the trees were out of season. Really, I, I just <laughs> the problem with Miller's Crossing really was the trees. Me. Really bothered it just, me. I'm like, come on, guys, seriously, you're gonna do this? Really? <laughs> All right. Well, that was our vivisection on Miller's Crossing. I still feel like we were just kind of skimming across the surface. Uh, I think there's so much more to be taken from this movie. I'm gonna keep watching it. I probably watch it at least once a year. And uh, this last year, it was a huge influence on. Uh, on the feature that we just shot last year. So I probably watched it 20 times last year alone. Um, but yeah, Miller's Crossing, uh, go rewatch it again. And I would love to hear your thoughts. And again, I reserve the right to change my opinion tomorrow uh, and to be proven wrong. Prove me wrong. This is an interpretation. Uh, and I think there are lots of ways to interpret it. I just think that these are metaphors that are working in the psyche of the Coen brothers. And um, I think they, they reveal certain, certain uh, conflicts that we're all dealing with, certain social conflicts. You want a vivisection. Cammy, Todd, thanks so much for joining me in this conversation. I love this. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go and rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> Cammy, where can we see more of your stuff? Uh, I will uh, forward you links so you can uh, cool. put it in there. We're still okay, working cool. on it. Otherwise, you can go to a Wolfpack. There you go. Ent, ent. Com. There we go. Wolfpack ent. Wolf, oh, wolfpack right. what? Wolfpack ent. Okay, cool. We'll be putting that up on the screen, yeah, and we'll also we'll have a link, a link in the the comments below. All right. Uh, next week's movie is going to be. 
Also, we're going to be having the diagrams and charts and all the breakdowns that we have are available on Story Kinetics. So you can go watch the video and you can also download um, all the visuals that go along with it. Um, and be sure and subscribe here on YouTube as well as at storykinetics.com where you can get all the updates. Uh, and then follow us on Facebook at the Art of Story Writing Group as well as, um, what am I missing? Oh, and we recently started TikToks where we're doing little uh, little takeouts of, of it. So be sure and follow us on TikTok, Instagram. Uh, we'll have all of the links uh, at storykinetics.com. And we'll make sure that you can uh, check out Cammy's uh, work as well. Uh, thanks a lot, guys. And we'll see you next week. Hey, I got a gun. Can I be a gun? Hey, go fetch it, dude.